In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee. Heavenly King, O comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. A treasure of your good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse from every stain, and save our souls. O good one. Make sure all the phones are off. I don't want any interference in the talk. It's very rude and very irresponsible and you break the people's concentration, you break my concentration and it's a sin. Turn them off, please. So as I stand here, as a, a teacher, I think to myself, how am I going to introduce today's topic? Got to have an, int an introduction. Introduction is very important because it helps to engage the people. Should I go straight into it? Like prayer. Should we go straight into prayer? St. Paisios has advice. He says, don't go straight into prayer because your heart's still cold, distracted from the day. Do some spiritual reading and then do some prayer. Now, some of you might say, oh, but I fall asleep when I read. Read standing up if you've got that problem. But do some reading. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever you want to dedicate. But do something to soften the heart and then proceed to prayer. The same with here. I can go straight into the meat of the talk, which I think won't be a very good idea. Or I can give some type of introduction, what we said before, an appetizer. What's an appetizer? Something that you have beforehand to stimulate your stomach cells there to have appetite for food, to open up your appetite. So I want to open up your appetite today with the following appetizer. So some years ago, a young Australian Serbian man visited a uh, women's monastery in Serbia. He wanted to improve his Serbian, so he decided to read the lives of saints in Serbian. One day, when he was on his own, 
he began reading aloud the life of St. Gregory of Agrigentum, 23rd of November. Suddenly, he heard someone crying. Apparently, it was an old nun who was sitting around the corner and the young man didn't know she was there and she was crying. And what happened was that she was moved by how the saint was slandered. That particular saint went through a lot of slanders. Christ went through slanders. So if we want to be followers of Christ, we also go through slanders. And we have to take in the Christian way. The saints went through slanders. The saint whose paraclesis, or meleben we did today, went through slanders. As you know, those of you who have read his life, or those that have listened to the five talks that I dedicated to St. Nectarius, around 20 hours worth of talks on St. Nectarius. He was slandered too. So she was moved by this. She was simple, according to this man, and had a lot of faith. Simple and a lot of faith. Some of you don't like the word simple. I didn't when I first came to the, to the church when I was around 25 and having gone and studied, etc. I thought that everything was to do with the mind, the intellect, logic and mind and memory. So when I would read spiritual books, I had a good memory and I could remember things and repeat them similar to a parrot, like a parrot repeats things. That's how I used to repeat things. And this temptation is for a lot of people. So I thought that was the most important thing, to memorize things, to know it. And But later on, when I went to Manathos, I discovered there's something more important than that. And that was humility and repentance. What's the point in reading spiritual books or memorizing them if we're full of diabolical pride if we don't have repentance we're finished then I started to realize it's not the most important thing so when I would see monks many of whom were uneducated some are educated some of them went to university some of them were very well educated but but a lot of them as well were uneducated and their humility, their simplicity was greater than those who have an intellect and can remember things but have not got those virtues of repentance and humility, etc. Now, you might say, but the word simple just makes me... It's a bit hard to say I want to be simple because it sounds like you're dumb or stupid or just no. But yet, St. Nectarius, who was educated, he was the first Greek Orthodox saint to finish theological school. Many of our saints, like St. Saint John Christen, Basil Gray, were extremely educated extremely intelligent and many today I think the new archbishop in the Greek church uh, from what I have heard that he's a very educated person many of them got doctorates and yet 
and you. They have simplicity. So you can be simple and intelligent. But when you're intelligent and you have no simplicity, no repentance, no humility, then basically you've got nothing. So I learned that when I went to Manatha. So this nun, probably she was uneducated, but very simple, a lot of faith. And I want you to know that in the monasteries, the reading of the lives of saints is a very big part of the monastic life there. They read them in trapeza, which means during their lunch and dinner. While they're reading, there's reading going on. They do read teachings as well, but a lot of it's to do with the saints. So they might choose the saint of the day and they read it. Sometimes it might take them three, four days to finish that because they, they read detailed lives. And the monks and the nuns listen to this. Now, some of you could say, well, we're not monastics and how are we going to do that? You can read it. There are many orthodox parents who after their dinner or whatever, they read, for example, the prologue to their children. It's a wonderful practice. Or you can do two things. You can either read the prologue or you can leave the TV on while you're having food. The kids can watch TV. That's, that's um, what a lot of people do today. So, let's have a look. In the previous talk, the previous two talks, let's see the titles. Title of Talk 78, Why do the demons fear when we read the lives of saints? I did that quite a few months ago, and that proved quite successful with God's help. The next talk, which I did recently, and only was ready a few weeks ago actually, the title of Talk 79, Why are the Lives of Saints Considered the Encyclopedia of Orthodoxy? That was the last talk. And I, we put together the blurb for that, and I'll read you the first paragraph of the blurb. This talk is a continuation of Talk 78, Why Do the Demons Tremble When We Read the Lives of Saints?, for many years, few saints' lives were available in the English language, leaving the English-speaking Orthodox faithful without this soul-saving spiritual nourishment. Such is no longer the case, and we now have volumes of the lives of saints available in English. Nevertheless, the majority of Orthodox Christians are spiritually deprived because they read the lives of saints either rarely or not at all. Now, when I first came into the church, through God's grace, was 84, saying, and I used to buy spiritual books. I bought some good ones that were available at the time, but I also bought from America. They were four volumes of Lives of Saints. Four volumes. Volume one, two, three, four. There was a green one and a red one and a yellow one and a blue one. I even remember the colours, or brown maybe. Four and I said, wow, this is great. I'm going to enjoy this. So I was reading the lives of saints. And the person, who was a priest, um, was comparing the saints to, well, one saint he compared to Olivia Newton-John, another saint to Mahatma Gandhi, and just went on and on and on. 
So what did I do? What was the solution for that? I didn't want them. So I said, maybe I can give them away, but then I don't want to destroy other people's souls by reading the stupidities. So I made a bonfire. Made a fire in the backyard, and they went up in smoke where they belong. But today we have exact translations of the lives of saints from Russia, from Greece, that were written in a proper way. Now, like icons, there's a certain style to painting icons, like rules. With singing, there's certain rules of how to sing. You may not know this, but there's also certain rules in the way lives of saints are written. And a lot of these modern versions are not written in a proper orthodox manner. So I would advise you, as we go on, to purchase the proper lives of saints. Now, there was a line in there which you might have missed that said, for many years, few saints' lives were available in the English language, leaving the English-speaking orthodox faithful without this soul-saving spiritual announcement. I underline soul-saving. Why? Because it's like... I'm saying, because I actually put this together with some help, that does that mean if you don't read it, if you don't get this nourishment, this spiritual nourishment, you're not saved? Is that what it means? Because I'm saying soul-saving. So the question I'll say, does that mean if we don't read the lives of saints, we can't be saved? That's basically today's theme. Now, St Justin Popovich in the last few talks, I, I read this and I want to read it again. He actually said something interesting. He said, an orthodox spiritual life is impossible without the reading of the lives of saints. So that kind of says something there. So if you can't lead a spiritual life, then how are you going to be saved? And yet he says, an orthodox spiritual life is impossible without the reading of the lives of saints. So isn't that saying... Maybe, is he saying you can't be saved without reading the lives of saints? Is that, uh, is that like a bit extreme? Is that mandatory? Is that like compulsory for an Orthodox Christian? When he says read the lives of saints, he doesn't mean just physically, because a lot of people can read physically, but it doesn't mean that they're doing it properly. I think what he means is that we need to venerate the saints and believe in their intercessions. So, how do we know if we're doing that? Do we venerate the saints? Do we believe in their intercessions? Intercessions means that they pray for us. Venerate venerate mean when we honour them and glorify them. Do we do that? Not just physically read. And the big question is, is the veneration of the saints and faith in their intercessions, is that part of the church's teaching? Is it a necessity? So how do we know if we've got the right attitude? Number one, do we want to learn about the saints by constantly reading their lives? So you check yourself, you ask, you say yes or no. Don't say it loud, just yes or no. Do I want to learn about the saints by constantly reading their lives? Or 
Do I prefer to go on the internet and read blogs of controversies in orthodoxy and the Moscow Patriarch with the Ecumenical Patriarch and all these divisions and other things and old calendar, new calendars, uh, Antichrist 666. Do we have that interest? Do we have more interest in listening to the news? I didn't say you can't listen to the news. I said, do we have more interest in listening to the news? You've got to ask yourself that. Do, do we have a thirst to learn about the lives of saints by constantly reading their lives? Number two, do we make them known to others by speaking of them, printing their lives, distributing their lives, distributing their teachings, and distributing their services and icons? Now, some of you can't, are not in a position to print Lives of Saints, which I don't know why, because you all have printers now. So you can find the Life of Saint, you can print it and give them out. I'll tell you what Mother used to do, that was her, that was her way. So she had Greek cassettes. And she used to listen to talks by Bishop Augustine, Demetrius Panagopoulos, which is a lay person, um, Nectarius Melotsotis, Nicolo Sotoropoulos, all these famous people that used to do talks in Greece, and she used to listen to them. So what she used to do, I used to, I remember the image, she should be in the lounge room, and she had the tape recorder which I got for her, and every time I walked past, and those, the two buttons were down, so she was listening to the talk, and the two buttons were down, play and record, so she was recording them. So... She was buying blank cassettes and recording these talks. Then with her own handwriting, she'll write what the title is. Then she would go to church, different ones, and she'll have them in a bag. And what she'd do is she would pick a person randomly, go up to them, place the, those talks in their hand and walk off quickly. That was her missionary work. Now, you might say, oh, how many people were influenced from that? How many people changed their lives? Or I don't know. She doesn't even know. She probably knows now because she's gone. And our good works will be put in front of us when we die. But how many? We don't know. Now, I'm doing talks today. These talks are heard by thousands of people. How many are influenced? How many people are helped? It's not my business. I've got to do my duty to prepare the talks and you let God do the rest. Sometimes I go, I go to the YouTube and I say, oh, look at my talk there. The last talk I think is around 1,000 now maybe. Then I look at other ones, 1.5 million, 2 million, 3 million, and I get really sad. And you say, why? Why do you get sad? Because you want to be popular do you want to have all these hits on the YouTube, whatever it's called? Uh, no, I don't care about that. What I care about is if I want to have high numbers, I want that because that way people are getting benefit. My aim is for people to hear the talk and get benefit. That's why I made them for free. I want more people to get benefit. And what God does is to protect me from pride and vainglory, which is easy to fall into. 
I don't really know what's happening out there. How many people are getting help? I get emails, thank you, I've, our family's changed and this and that and very good talks and my kids and that, 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 all this feedback that I get. But not much, but there is feedback. But how much of an effect these talks are having, I don't know. Because God's protected me and because God wants me to have the following attitude. I throw the seed. He promotes the growth. The farmer throws the seed on his, on his um, fields. And then whether they grow it depends on God, whether he sends rain, whether he sends all these things, not up to the farmer. Farmer does his duty. I'm doing my duty. And God does the rest. So, what can you do? You can distribute the lives of saints. You can buy them, little, little ones. Some of you are very computer literate. You can produce them yourselves. You can give out their icons to people. Number three, do we venerate their icons and relics? Do we venerate them? And venerate means with our heart, not just physically kiss. A lot of people physically kiss the icons. But do we venerate with our hearts the saints' icons and relics? Do we honour and glorify them? Number four, do we pray to them, attend their services, like today, we just attended the service of St. Nectarius, sing their Trapari and Kentucky at home, we just sang the Trapario of St. Nectarius. The Kentuckian was done just before we, we blessed the, the Koliva, the wheat. Do we read and, or sing, because some of you don't know how to sing them, their Akathis and Canons at home? Do we attend their feast days? This is how we know if we are what St. Justin meant that reading the lives of saints just doesn't mean reading. He means, yes, read them, but all these other things. If we don't have that attitude, then something's wrong with our spirituality. Now, so a possible title for this talk, Can We Spiritually Progress Without Reading the Lives of Saints? That's one, that was my first uh, choice. But then I thought of another choice, which I'll tell you soon. I'm going to read you something from St. Paul quickly. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, 1 to 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Look at that. If I even give my body to be burnt, to, to become a martyr, but I haven't got love for others, it's nothing. If I give all my money to the poor, but I have no love, it's nothing. If I know all the mysteries, etc., it's nothing. But I think we need to know, what does St. Paul mean when he says... Uh, I become, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. When I found this 
When Paul wrote about a sound in brass, he borrowed an illustration from the pagan world of Corinth to make his point about Christians. He wrote this to the Corinthians. So when St. Paul and all the saints, when they write things, they try to borrow things that are familiar to the people that they're writing to. So when Paul wrote about a sound in brass, he borrowed an illustration for the pagan world of Corinth to make his point about Christians who show no love. The illustration he chose to use was the endless, non-stop, annoying, aggravating, irritating, frenzied beating and clanging of brass that was performed in pagan worship and that echoed ceaselessly throughout the city of Corinth. The pagans had a, had a practice, like similar today, bang, 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 they used to hit medals and drums and whatever they used to do and they used to unite that with sex and drugs and they used to do whatever they used to do and that, that was their worship. And the people of Corinth used to be subjected to that, whether Christian, even maybe pagans as well, just couldn't, was so loud, was continual. The citizens of Corinth could never escape the endless banging of this metal, so this was an illustration everyone in the Corinthian church could easily com comprehend. So St. Paul uses this example to show that a person who has no love but leads an external spiritual life is like one who goes on endlessly in a continuous, non-stop, shallow, boastful, irritating, in a way, self-glorification of themselves. Like the expression, tooting one's own horn, loud again. Ooh, ooh, like really loud. That means to boast or brag about one's abilities, skills, success, achievements. So, as Christians, maybe we're just sounding brass by boasting all the time. I fast. I fast Wednesday and Friday. I have no oil. I read books. I confess, some people might say, I commune, I pray, I do, I this and I that and this and that and that. That's irritating as well for people to listen to it. So, St. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, all you do is brag about your supposed virtues, but you don't have love. And if you don't have love, it's all rubbish, everything else that you're saying. If you haven't got love... Now, in the toll houses, there are 20 toll houses. And I make note, when I did the talk on that, 46 and 47, I went through all the toll houses, if I remember right. So there's 18, 17, adultery, sexual things, homosexuality, but all those sexual sins are around there. Then we go to 19. The 19th toll house is heresy. Now, the zealots in the world who believe that's it, heresy, that because they're keeping the faith, because they have nothing to do with ecumenism, they're saved. That's the 19th Torah. But what's number 20? Which is above. If you, have, if you, if you keep the faith, what St. Paul said, even if you have the faith to move mountains, whatever he said there, etc., you're not saved 
unless you get through the 20th toll house. Who knows what the 20th toll house is? No, 20th. He said, if you haven't got love. Even though if you haven't got love, it's because you're proud. So you're right in some ways too. So love is number 20. So even if you're a zealot and you keep your orthodoxy pure, you keep the proper calendar, you don't have any association with the ecumenists, etc., but you haven't got love, then it's like bang, 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 like a clanging cymbal. It's worthless. But I'm orthodox. I'm orthodox. I'm orthodox. And those people, a lot of them, who say they're zealots, are very harsh. Very harsh. Very judgmental. And you can see coming from them, a lot of them, oozing hate. But they think they're like the saints, because the saints were harsh against those who were teaching wrong things. The saints were harsh with love. When the saints called someone a devil, deservedly, some of the heretics like Arius, our saints called him a devil. Because what did he say? He was saying that Christ isn't God. So when they tried to help him to repent, he wouldn't repent. At the end, they called him a devil. But a devil, when they called him a devil, it was full of pain saying what's going to happen to his soul what's going to happen when he dies he's become like a devil while the others those who haven't got love those who are zealots supposedly they go oh what a devil ha 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 he 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 and all these things it's a joke so the saints had love which we're going to see soon when i read you something question What's that, what I just read about the love and not having love, what's that got to do with today's talk about reading the lives of saints? So let me, let me read you something, see what you think. Though I lead a spiritual life, but do not love reading the lives of saints, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I pray, fast, read the Bible, give alms to the poor, do prostrations, preach Christ, but do not read the lives of saints, I'm nothing. And though I go to church, confess, commune, and endure sufferings for Christ, but do not love reading the lives of the saints, it profits me nothing. Where do you think I got that from? Does anyone know? From myself, I made it up. I made it to be the same as the one about love. Like if you've got no love, but you do everything else, it's worthless. Now I'm going to say the following. It sounds harsh, but I'll try to show it today. If you don't have a love for the renalizer saints, if you don't venerate the saints, if you don't trust in their intercessions, pray to them, etc., then it says here, it profits me nothing. So I was thinking to change the title Instead of, can we spiritually progress without reading the lives of saints? Two, can we be saved without reading the lives of the saints? Now, I said before, is this true? 
Is that an orthodox teaching? Is this orthodox? Is this, is this fanatical? Crazy? Is the intercession of the saints a doctrine, like a belief, held by the orthodox church? The other one. Is the veneration of the saints a doctrine held by the orthodox church? There's two things to do with the saints. We venerate them. That means we honour them, glorify them, and we trust in their intercessions. That means we believe that they are close to God and they pray for us. We pray to them and they answer our prayers. And I want to know, is that compulsory? Is that necessary for us to be Orthodox Christians? Now, I'm going to read for you um, something from the Third Ecumenical Council. If anyone does not confess that Emmanuel is truly God and therefore that the Holy Virgin is a Theotokos, for she gave birth in the flesh, the word of God become flesh, let him be anathema. What's this anathema? Because here they're saying, if you don't believe that Mary the Theotok, gave birth to Christ, not just as a human, but as God, then you are anathema according to the Third Ecumenical Council. What's this anathema? And by the way, as I was doing this research, I found something that St. Justin Povich said. If it wasn't for the most holy mother of God, Mary, we would all have become demons by now. If it wasn't for her. We all would have become demons by now. So we have to know how to venerate the mother of God in the correct way, which is why St. John of San Francisco put together that book, The Orthodox Veneration of the, of the Theotokos, I think, something like that, produced by uh, St. Herman of Alaska Brotherhood, maybe. Now, today you hear, what does it matter whether something is a little bit changed, whether the Catholics believe in it differently or the other religions or the Coptics, they believe in uh, the one nature of Christ, that he's God, we believe in the two natures then there's the two wills of Christ, the two energies of Christ. What does it matter? And people are so stupid to actually even make such a comment to say, why is it? That's what the devil tells us. The devil tells us, for the sake of love, why do we have these arguments and disunity? If it wasn't for dogma, we would all be together. Why did God enlighten the God-bearing fathers to come together in councils to give us the true faith, the proper faith, the proper dogma? Because without the proper belief, so to say that Christ is only God, like the Coptics and the others monophysites do, by saying that, you actually are destroying... I don't understand it because I'm not that theological and I don't want to get into it because I'm, I could slip and I, and I don't want to do that. But I can say that if we don't believe in the two natures of Christ, then our idea of salvation is all distorted and we can't be saved. That's why these fights were occurring, these struggles to keep the faith... And we can't say willy-nilly like people say, what does it matter? Love is more important. Love without truth is dead 
and truth without love is dead. So, like I said before, if you've got all the correct faith but you've got no love, you're nothing. Or if you've got love but you don't have the correct faith, it's nothing. You've got to have both. Now, what does this word anathema mean? St. John of San Francisco, he tells us, the word anathema came to mean complete separation from the church. Those given over to anathema were thus completely torn away from her, the church, until their repentance. Realising that she is unable, realising the church, in other words, that she is unable to do anything for their salvation, in view of their stubbornness and hardness of heart, the earthly church lifts them up to the judgment of God. So when the church pronounces an anathema, what the church is saying is that that person or persons are cut off from the church. They're cut off from salvation. They will go to hell. Now you say, well, that's isn't that harsh? How's that love? How's this? How's that? See what it says here? It says because they couldn't do anything else. They tried to reason with them. They tried to help them. They tried to explain things to them. But they would not repent. And it had no other way because of their stubbornness and hardness of heart, their pride, like the gentleman at the back said, because of their pride, the church says, well, I'm going to go to the big guns. We're going to anathematize them, hoping that they will repent. And many of them did. Now, for example, some of you believe that you shouldn't hit a child under no circumstance. These new, the new, you know, the socially, the social justice warriors and all these other crazy people at all. So the child is fixed on the stove. It's just intrigued. It's obsessed with that stove. It wants to go and play with the knobs. Gets up on a little stool and turns the knob and turns the gas on. So you say, don't do that. But the child's only young. Don't do that. Bad. The child doesn't understand. Remember, the child only begins to understand when it starts getting a bit older. When it's one, two, or three, whatever, sometimes they can't. So you try everything. Now, then you have the idea, maybe if I smack at one on, on its hand and it hurts, then he might or she might understand better. But then they say, oh, but that's cruel, we shouldn't do that. But it, it might work. Or you leave the child alone and the child gasses him or herself and gasses you at the same time as well. So I can say, realising, the parents realising that they are unable to do anything to keep the child safe from gassing themselves, in view of not their stubbornness and hardness of heart, but in view of their youngness, their immaturity, they're not intellectually developed, they don't understand. In view of all that, the earthly church, now we change that, the parents subject them to some physical 
punishment. Saint Basil says this. He says, when the child is young and then he doesn't understand, you give it some smacks until it gets older. But when it gets older, you, you speak to them. Don't use those methods, he said. So, goes up to turn on the gas and you give it a, a smack. It doesn't help. So you've got to use the big guns. Really, a bit hard. The child cries. Some can say it's cruel. But then after that, lo and behold, it doesn't go to the gas anymore. So you're using it as a last resort. That's the same as the church. The church does not want those people who the church is anathematizing, it doesn't want them not doing it as a revenge, it's not doing it out of hatred. It's doing it because it's the only, that's the last resort to help them to repent and stop believing in things which are not orthodox, which jeopardizes their own salvation, but also others who they're influencing. So the church not only does that, doesn't only give them the anathema for themselves, but also for the other faithful to say, you do that, if you follow their corrupt demonic teachings, you also will get the anathema. So, again, using the examples, sorry, but it's, I was a teacher for so many years. Sometimes you have, when you go to a new school, they don't know you, they don't respect you, especially if they're older. The year sevens, they're okay, they're new, they don't know that you're new. They just think your teacher's been there for years. But the ones that are year nine and then they know you haven't been there before. They know you're new. And what do they do? They muck around. So what do you do? Do you put them all on detention? It's very difficult to do that. So what I do is I never show that I'm upset. So I get the worst one. I say, excuse me, can I see you at lunchtime? Usually, because they're really out of it, they don't come. So then I go to the next step. Because you didn't... Meanwhile, they're still mucking around. The rest of the kids are still mucking around, but I'm concentrating on the one kid. Uh, okay, because you didn't come, you now have an afternoon detention, my personal one. So you give them the slip, the, the detention slip. What do they do? Do they come? No. Because they think you're bluffing. Most, most teachers don't follow things up. So they don't come. So then I go to the next step. Because it didn't come, it, I, hand, I hand it over to the school. Then the school puts them onto a school detention. And if they're really out of it, they don't come to that either, some of them. And what happens then? They've got to go on a blue book. A blue book means they've got to get uh, comments from every teacher, every period for a month or so. Some of them even file that. Then they go on to a red book. This is Liverpool boys when I was there. Uh, the red book. Red book's good, I like the red book. When they file that, they get suspended. Most of the time, they used to leave. They're gone. Now what happened? Without having to say, be quiet, stop talking, I'm going to keep you in when you can't. You can't keep them all in. Uh, sh shut up. Oh, sorry. Um, and it just go on and on. What happens is they hear, 
Did you hear what happened to that kid? What happened? Oh, that mean teacher put him on lunchtime. He didn't come and he put him on afternoon. He didn't come and he put him on this, the blue book and this and that. Within a very short time, guess what happens? Perfect class. And I didn't even work on the others. I only worked on one. See, that's the, if I do that, imagine what the church, which has all wisdom, the church says, let's give this person the anathema to wake him up, but also to scare the others, to make people to have the fear of God. You can't just believe things that are contrary to the Orthodox Church. St. John goes on. Anathema is not final damnation. Until death, repentance is possible. So they say to the person, anathema, you're going to go to hell, but as long as they're alive, they have time for repentance. They can come back to the church, which many did, and said, forgive me. Anathema is fearsome, not because the church wishes evil on anyone or because God seeks their damnation. God does not want them to go to hell. They desire that all be saved. And when I read that, I go, who's they? I got confused. And then someone who was helping me type it up said, I think they mean they. I think St. John's meaning God and the church. Oh, I didn't think of that. That's good. So they desire that all be saved. But it is fearsome to stand before the presence of God in the state of hardened evil. Nothing is hidden from him. So that's what anathema means. Now that we know what anathema means, I'm going to read to you Canon 20 of the Council of Gangra, which was held in 345 AD. And this was a local council, local in, in this area of Gangra. I think somewhere in Turkey now. But this council was later on accepted universally by the 5th or 6th or 7th Ecumenical Council. I don't remember when, but it became a council that the whole church accepted. If anyone shall, from a presumptuous disposition, condemn and abhor the assemblies of the martyrs or the services performed there and the commemoration of them, let them be anathema. This is another anathema. This is to do with the martyrs. I'll read it again, but I'll change some words to make it easy. If anyone shall, from a proud, arrogant, self-opinionated and thought, thoughtless disposition like in their heart, condemn and disdain, disdain, like reject the assemblies in honour of the martyrs or the services performed there and the commemoration of them, let them be anathema. Let them be cut off from the church. In other words, it was compulsory for all the church to venerate the martyrs, to attend their services to, and their commemoration. Anathema. Now, you can say, but that's the martyrs. Does that mean... A yes, in the beginning, the church 
would only recognize the martyrs, but after a certain century, I can't remember, fourth or maybe after this, a little bit after, I can't remember, they started, see, in the, in the beginning, the church only recognized the martyrs because the first 300 years, the church was persecuted, and people, the church knew. If someone confessed Christ, they automatically became a saint. But once the church was free, in 313, and the flow of martyrs stopped, the church started to accept hierarchs, righteous priests, lay people, monastics, etc., etc. But for our purpose, they're saying if you don't recognize the martyrs who are in heaven, if you don't venerate them, if you don't, etc., etc., anathema. Now, the apostolic constitutions compiled in 390 AD, apostolic constitutions, I don't know exactly, but I think it meant that these were put, these rules were put together in the spirit of what the apostles taught. Those apostolic constitutions instruct. Now, concerning the martyrs, we say to you that they are to be held in all honour with you. These constitutions are saying that in the spirit of the apostles, you are required to honour the martyrs. Now, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, I'll give you some history. Some of you have never heard of it because you don't read the lives of saints, but hopefully you will. The iconoclasts, the emperor, and that started in 720, something around there. That emperor was crazy, superstitious, and he thought that the reason why he was losing some wars in the Byzantine Empire was because people were venerating icons, and in his demonic mind, he thought, by venerating icons, we're venerating idols. It's idol worship. So the iconoclasts ordered that all icons be destroyed, whether on the walls, they whitewashed them, whether on vestments, whether on chalices, whether on wood, they had to be destroyed. And they decreed that their veneration was illegal, forbidden. And you know that a lot of the saints went through martyrdom. They were tortured because of that. Relics of the saints were also destroyed. And they even went as far as to condemn veneration of the mother of God and of the saints. Only the cross was allowed to be venerated. Only the cross. Now, what does that remind you of? Where today is the, only the cross allowed to be venerated? Do you know? Protestant churches. So just think of that. People say... Oh, the church, it's, oh, it's, it's really bad. It's so bad, the communism. And, uh, you know, they're going into hyperventilation. I don't go into hyperventilation. I used to, but not, you know why? Because I read, I read the lives of saints. And I, when I read the lives of saints, I've discovered that 
these things happened in the past and worse. Now, today, do we have the removal of icons? No. Are we allowed to venerate their relics? Yes. Are we told not to venerate the Mother of God? No. Are we told not to venerate the saints? No. Is there ecumenism? Yes. But the church has dealt with things in the past. That's why I mentioned a few talks before that Saint Theodore the Studite, at that time of the, iconic, the iconoclasm, he thought it was going to be the end of the world soon. He actually said the end of the world's coming because it can't get worse than this. In the Byzantine Empire, icons were being destroyed. You weren't allowed to venerate the Mother of God the saints, the relics. And he said to himself, it's the end of the world. And what decision did the Seventh Ecumenical Council make? To those who do not venerate the holy and venerable images, anathema. This was put together, this council, against those who did not allow icons to be venerated, did not allow the mother of God to be venerated, did not allow the saints to be venerated, and did not allow the relics to be venerated, and there was more. They abolished monasticism. They did a lot. And I'm going to go through that. If you're interested, read the life of Saint Stephen the New, and you'll see what they went through. They forced monks and nuns to get married. The amount of martyrs that were produced during that period was great, a large number. The Seventh Ecumenical Council, 787 AD, declared that, quote, we adore and respect God our Lord. And those who have been genuine servants of our common Lord, we honour and venerate because they have the power to make us friends with God, the King of all. So in other words, we do not worship the Mother of God. We do not worship icons. We do not worship the relics. We do not worship the saints. We venerate them. The only one that we worship is God. So it says we adore, meaning, translation, worship. And why is that important to venerate the saints? Because they have the power to make us friends with God, the King of all. What that friends means is because they're close to God and through their intercessions, they can help us become also friends of God. In other words, to be united with God. In other words, to be saved. Now, the Protestants, and perhaps some Orthodox, only God can save us, they say. The mother of God is not necessary. The saints aren't necessary. So, what do we say to those unfortunate, darkened, proud, and some of them ignorant, but most of them proud? What do we say? I'm going to give you an example. We have a king. The king is powerful. 
the king is the only one who can stop an execution, for example. He has to do it. No one else has that power. He had the, the power to do that. The family of a condemned man want to go and beg the king, please have mercy, my king, please have mercy, don't execute my husband or my son or whatever. But they can't, can't get to him or he doesn't want to see them or there's others stopping him or there's all these obstructions, whatever. So what do they do? They said, oh, why don't we go to his mother? to the king's mother because the king he really loves his mother and perhaps she can intercede for us perhaps she can beg her son to stop the execution so they get access to the king's mother easier than getting access to the to the king and they say to her, please, please ask your son to save my husband or whatever, etc. She goes then to the king and says, spare this person. No, he's committed a crime and he has to die. Please, she says, I'm your mother. No, the king's a bit stubborn. No, 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 please, I'm your mother. I breastfed you. I took care of you. And the king gets a bit gets softened. Yes, the person's deserved of death, but he gets softened because his mum's asking him, please. And the king is softened because of the great relationship he has with his mother and says, okay, for your sake... I will pronounce, because only I have the power to pronounce, that that person will not be executed. By the intercessions of the Theotokos, O Saviour, save us. We sing in the liturgy. By the intercessions of the Theotokos, O Saviour, save us. Listen to that. It doesn't say by the mother of God save us but by her intercessions O Saviour save us the Saviour Christ is the only one that can save us but he listens to his mother and he listens to his friends and who are his friends the saints by the intercessions of the saints O Saviour, save us. They cannot save directly. They have no power. All salvation comes from Christ. See, the Protestants teach. They go, oh, but you believe in saints and the mother of God. And they say, we don't say they can save us. We're not saying they're saving us. We're saying their prayers to Christ can help us to be saved by him. I found this in a book called Our Orthodox Christian Faith by Athanasius Frangopoulos. It's a book written on all the Orthodox teachings. 
and he writes in there, another reason why we honour the memory and the icons of the saints and honourably venerate them is their emulation, that is, the copying and imitating of their virtues, their sanctity, and in general, their God-pleasing way of life. We ought to live as they lived, holy, full of faith, God-beloved, and dedicated to God. The holy icons display to us the example of the saints' life in God. According to St. Basil the Great and the Seventh Ecumenical Council, icons are tongue-bearing books, books that speak, and teach the virtue and sanctity of them whom they represent. Moreover, we ought to know that the honour shown to the icon refers chiefly to the person of the saint that is depicted thereon. Hence, we have the saints as our intercessors before the Lord and as help in our needs. We have them, the saints, their holy icons, and we have their holy relics as examples of virtue and sanctity. This is why we honour them and celebrate their memory and invoke them, pray to them, in our prayers, in our supplications and in our liturgies. See what it says here? That's why we honour them. We celebrate their memory. We glorify them, etc. Because we want to imitate their lives and we want their help to help us to be saved, to come closer to God. Back in the old days, and still, some people are illiterate. They can't read. They can't read the lives of saints. And they say that the icon is like a book. A lot of icons also got scenes around them of the saint's life. Now, I'm going to go through what I've already gone through in Talk 78, and I added some new ones in 79, and I'm going to add some new ones today. And what are they? I'm going to go through the saints that read the lives of saints in Holy Scripture, and I'm going to go through the saints that also wrote the lives of saints, etc., etc. So, these are the ones I've already mentioned. I'm going to say who the saint is or the blessed one because some of them have not been canonised. And then we move on quickly. Elder Cleopa, who passed away in 1998, has not been canonised by the Romanian church yet, but will, but will be. He's, this is what he said. I read the lives of saints, of which I had all 12 volumes. I would read them and the day would pass by in what seemed like an hour. The lives of saints really strengthens one very much so. Number two, St. Sava of Kalimnos commemorated 7th of April. From his childhood, familiarity with the lives of saints had ignited in his heart a desire for the monastic life. In other words, the lives of saints were so powerful that they inspired him to become a monastic. Number three, Holy Mother Elizabeth, the Wonderwork, 24th of April. From her earliest years, she learned the lives of saints by heart so that she was able to follow the example of their evangelical conduct in every circumstance of her life. It's so good to have the lives of saints in your mind and every time some situation comes up, you call to mind the, the, what's written in the Bible, you call to mind the saints. Go, what did the saint do in that situation? And they always come to mind. 
Saint Justin Popovich, 1979. One of his major works was his collection of the lives of the saints in 12 volumes written in modern Serbian. And remember what he said, an orthodox spiritual life is impossible without the reading of the lives of the saints. Number five, Father Seraphim Rose, 1982, has not been glorified yet, but blessed like a saint, obviously. Uh, Father Seraphim said that when one is writing on a spiritual subject, one should try to not only discuss it in the abstract, in other words, don't just present what you're saying intellectually, theoretically, and not with practical examples. He says, but to give the living examples from the lives of the saints. I'm thinking back all these years that I've been doing talks, even when I was a layperson. I'm thinking, thinking, I'm saying to myself, you know, I always would use the lives of saints. Without the lives of saints in my talks, I'm pretty much worthless. I can't do it. Father Seraphim Rose in his Soul After Death book, full of lives of saints, in his section on the UFOs, full of lives of saints. So don't just speak theoretically, but use the lives of saints as examples. St. Anthony of Voronezh. Did I say it right? Where's the Russians? 1846. What I do now is I get the speaking dictionary on the internet because I said I can't keep on asking the Russians because when they say it, I can't understand them anyway. So what I do now is I put it in and they blurt it out. Voronezh. Is that right? Something like that? can't believe it. I'm becoming Russian in my old age. Okay. He that has not yet read the lives of the saints has not read much of value. For in these lives, graceful virtues appear in bright forms. In these lives, the gospel truth shines forth in examples. And in these lives, examples are to be found which lead one to a holy life. The lives of the saints teach us how to fulfill the commandments of the Lord. And he explained that how are you going to understand what the Bible's saying unless you read the lives of saints? And I explained all that in the previous talks. New Martyr John of Thessalonica, 29th of May. Although literate, John showed remarkable piety and a great desire to hear his brother read the Holy Scriptures or the lives of saints. Their great accomplishments were engraved deeply on his young memory. On the 3rd of May, 1802, his father sent him to deliver some shoes. Seeing that he had not returned, he sent his other son and his nephews to see what had happened. Great was their surprise, their shock to learn that John had apostatized. He fell away from the faith and had that same day been converted to Islam. Unable to accept such a sudden change in one who had shown great signs of piety and repulsion for the enemies of the faith, they went to search for him and ended by discovering that he had entered the service of an eminent Turk and had received the name Mehmed. Now, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to do this in another talk, maybe the next one, maybe the next one, whatever. Or you can read it yourself. It's very in this was a very interesting life because it's not what you think. Even though he was working freely, it didn't look like he was captive or being forced. But I wanted to emphasise 
that he read from Young the laws of the saints and the scriptures, and he was illiterate, so he used to not read, he never read, sorry, he used to hear his brother. Number nine, Holy Father Ignatius Branchaninov, 30th of April. He loved going to church and reading the gospel and found his delights in the lives of the saints. Delights. Yes, it's delightful to read the lives of the saints. Do you find delight in reading the lives of saints? Do I find delights in reading the lives of saints? You ask yourself, well, if you don't, there's something wrong. Number 10, Venerable Father Seraphim of Domvos, 6th of May. Under the direction of the village priest, he gave himself zealously and attentively to the study of Holy Scripture and the lives of the saints. As I read the Synaxarian, I just come across continually this reference to the saints reading the lives of saints. And the Holy Scriptures, but more the lives of saints. And I, and I don't want to disdain the Holy Scriptures. I've explained all this in the past. What I, the main point is you cannot understand the Holy Scriptures without reading the lives of saints. Full stop. Saint Akakios of Kapsuka Livia, 12th of April. He had a thirst for the knowledge of divine things, so he would attentively follow the church services and the reading of the lives of the saints. There's one where it doesn't mention the Scriptures. He just says he loved going to church and he loved reading the lives of saints. Saint Macarius the Merstreamer, abbot of Coliazino, 17th of March. In his childhood, St. Macarius read the lives of saints enthusiastically. He became so filled with their brilliant deeds that he wanted to imitate them so that he could find salvation. So, do we read, we ask ourselves, do we read the lives of saints enthusiastically? Yes, you're on the good path. No, then you're in danger. Number 13, Venerable Father David of Thessalonica, 26th of June. He led a strict ascetic life and he studied Holy Scripture and the lives of saints. And I'll put a little note there for you. Asceticism without the reading of Holy Scripture and the lives of saints is worthless. As is asceticism without practicing the commandments. That's demonic. Many ascetics who were fasting and praying, etc., weren't practicing the commandments. They fell into diabolical deception. And many of them did not read the lives of saints. Saint Daniel of Achkinsk, 10th of June. During his military service, he learned to read by passionately immersing himself in the Holy Scriptures and the lives of saints. Saint Porphyrios, the Kapsuka Leviti, 1991. This is a new section, by the way. I found it. As a youth, Evangelos was fascinated by the lives of the saints. Reading about these holy persons, he was filled with the desire to become a monk and to devote his whole life to Christ and his church. He didn't know much. He wasn't very educated, St. Porphyrios. He only had like a first-class education, but he would sit down and read the lives, especially St. John the Hartwella he loved. This is from the previous talks. This is him speaking. While I was looking after the sheep, I read the life of St. John the Hartwella, syllable by syllable. That's where my zeal to go and become a monk came from. Even though I knew nothing, I hadn't even seen a monk or a monastery. He had knew nothing about <coughs> monasteries, etc. But he had that desire to become a monk. 
just from reading the lives of saints. Also in the previous talk, this is when he became a novice in Manathos. My spiritual fathers wouldn't let me read anything from the great fathers which contain deep spiritual teachings. That is, Saint Ephraim, the, uh, Saint Isaac the Syrian, Saint John of the Latter, Saint Simeon, the new theologian, and the Evergetinos, etc. They had forbidden me. So in obedience, I read only the lives of saints. I read only, as well, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, and the book of the Eight Tones, and the Menea, which is the service books of every day, containing the hymns for the days of each month. And that was where I learned to read from, because to begin with, I wasn't able to read. He only had a first-class first education. Why did his spiritual fathers, he had two there, why did his spiritual fathers forbid him to read the Dipper books? And why don't today spiritual fathers forbid people? Today it's like um, people go to the spiritual father, oh, Father, I read, I read Isaac the Syrian. That's good, very good. And they get proud of themselves, the priest, and say, look at how much of a good spiritual child I've got. The latter. Simeon, the new theologian, and all these deep books, as if it's nothing. They haven't got the basics of spiritual life and they're reading these deep books and that's why they become, become diabolical. A lot of these people become zealots or later on fall away from the church or sketch of those. A lot of them read these books in the beginning. How wonderful it would be for children to learn to read by reading the lives of saints. This is my, my own instead of books that are full of fantasy, falsehood and satanic themes. Depending on each child, children should begin to learn to read the lives of saints from around seven. Some people begin to read even around ten because they're not ready. But what do we do? We send them to preschools, we send them to school, four and a half years old, and begin to learn. It's a proven fact those kids who were exposed to these things early, they have problems with learning all their life. The older a child learns, the better it is. But there's all these programs, programs, programs of videos for the children to learn the ABCs, etc. Why? Parents are silly. Now, there might be some exceptions where some kids do learn a little bit earlier. That's exceptional. Usually the age, that's why in Russia, Greece, etc., the age for school was around seven, eight. Not five, four and a half like now. And as time goes on, it's already starting on TV, you can see they're starting to talk about it more, that kids that started school early do have problems. For example, boys. Boys are made to go to school at a young age. Boys are not like girls. They're different. As blasphemous as that might seem to these gender people, it's true. They're different. Boys are more energetic. They're more active. They can't sit down. It's very hard for them to sit down in classrooms. The younger they are, it's hard. As they grow up, maybe a bit better. But when they're young, they just agitate. They want to move around. They want to do things. And what the teacher does, the teacher then reports it to the, to the psychologist of the school, bring the parents in, oh, you know what, 
John's got ADHD, ADD, this, 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 that. Okay, we're going to put them on Ritalin. We're going to put them on tablets because uh, he's not going to learn. Not going to learn. So now, just recently it was on TV, that it's now been exposed that there is an over-prescribing of these tablets, especially for boys, because they can't settle down. That's right, because they're normal. They want to do things, build things, run, play, rumble, etc. Not sit there and A, B, C. What for? They're going to learn it when they grow, when they grow a bit older. I remember teaching a kid once, he was young, and I was teaching him um, maths, but he was, he was young, he was around five or four, I don't know how old he was, I was doing a little bit there, I was a little bit ignorant at that time, and I, was, and I go, wow, this kid's adding and subtracting, and I just couldn't believe what I was seeing, I said, he's very young. But after a while, it didn't take long, after some months, at the end he couldn't do anything. There's some burst of energy, I don't know what it was there, and after that, he just collapsed. A new list now, I found some new ones. St. Nectarius. His parents and his grandmother taught him prayers, psalms, and the lives of saints. Through their example, through the example of the lives of saints, love for Christ was deeply rooted in his young heart. And what was the result of St. Nectarius being taught prayers and psalms, the lives of saints? Uh, the result is that he is one of the greatest saints of the 20th century. By the way, I have a little piece of his relics here, which I obtained when I went to Greece. It's a little part of his body. It's a very, very small speck, but it's there. But if we give our children the lives of saints, they might become inspired to become monks or nuns. Firstly, not many become monks or nuns, a very small percentage. And I tell you the truth, you wish they would. Because perhaps some parents can't be saved because of, they just can't do spiritual life properly. But by having a child who's a monastic, they can be saved. A lot of parents change a lot once their children become monastics. So that's a big thing. Another big thing is, unrelated to this, but a bit similar. When people come to me and say, I was completely worldly and my parents don't even believe much and suddenly I came to the church, but I don't know how. I had no interest. My parents didn't teach me anything. My mind starts to think, think, think. Do you have a brother or sister or someone that died when they were young? How did you know? Because I said, they, they prayed for you and brought you to the church. It could be even a parent if they were righteous and they were saved. A grandmother. Our purpose is to be saved. The lives of saints help us to be saved. 
If you do not give them to your children, they're going to learn other things, which you're going to see soon. So let us, uh, what time is it? Oh, on the dot, 6.30, good. Have the sandwiches and um, we'll come back soon and we'll continue on. Someone asked me during the break, what was the point I was trying to bring up about the old nun that was at the monastery crying? I thought I explained it, but perhaps I can add that the lives of saints are powerful. If you remember from the last talk, when I read the lives of Saint Lydia, Alexis and Kirill, the new martyrs under communism, when I read those lives to a young man he confessed sincerely, communed, and then I read those lives and the person then exhibited demonic, like he was, he was possessed. If you want to hear the story, you can listen there. But the lives of saints are powerful, very powerful. Now, I've got a new list of saints that I found and that others have found which uh, read the lives of saints, etc. So I'll read them and we can move on. So we already said Saint Nectarius, number one, his parents and his grandmother taught him prayers, psalms, and the lives of the saints. It's very interesting that it's exactly the same as Saint Porphyrios, what he was told by his elders, uh, taught him the prayers, psalms, the lives of saints, And they added the church services. God willing, after we finish these talks, which I don't know how long it's going to take, I want to do a, a, some one or two talks on the reading of the services of the saints from the Munir. Now, I've already encouraged you to buy the prologue, encourage you to buy the Synaxarian, and I want to, later on, encourage you to buy service books. So that way you can read the canon to the saint, those of you who want. So the second saint is Saint Niphon, Bishop of Constantia, 23rd of December. Saint Niphon was born in Egypt about 300 years after Christ was born. His father sent him to Constantinople at the tender age of eight. He was sent there to get a proper education. Notice eight, not six, five, four and a half, eight. He was sent there to get a proper education. Nephon, being a talented pupil, learned a lot in a short time. He knew the scriptures by heart and was enthralled by the lives of saints. Now, the life set enthralled. So what do I do to help you? Some of you don't know what enthralled is. Some of you are young, some of the young ones, but also some of you are, English is not your first language. So I always go and try and either change the word or I give you some alternatives. Enthralled, captivated, fascinated. So he knew the scriptures by heart and was 
captivated by the lives of saints. He knew the scriptures by heart and was fascinated by the lives of the saints. Niphon grew up and became a pious and talented youth. Whoever saw him felt as if he was seen an angel. However, due to his inexperience in spiritual warfare, Niphon started associating with bad company, which led him to fall into serious sins. Full stop. That's the end. Now, that life deserves to be treated on its own. I just wanted you to tell you the first part about the lives of saints. But I want to do this in, in a, bit, a bit, bit more full because this is going to help parents who have children who were brought up Christians but later fell away. And let's see what happened to him. Maybe we can get some ideas. That's why we read the lives of saints, to help us to see examples. So he was brought up Christian. He read the lives of saints. He loved them. But then he got mixed up with the wrong crowd and he fell away and he fell into big sins. And then later on it talks about his life, his conversion, some friends, what they said to him. I think one of his friends said to him that you look disgusting, like ugly, black or something like that. And that affected him. Why did his friends say that? Isn't that bad? Is it a Christian speak like that? Well, it depends how you're saying it. If you're saying it out of cruelty, no. But if you're saying it because you say, you know, look at you look, you look demonic. But you're saying it from your heart, from your concern, to help the person, it's different. Number three, Saint Paisios. Blessed little Asenios, as was his name before he became a monk, blessed little Asenios, together with his mother's milk, received from his parents an attitude of sincere reverence toward God. Instead of telling stories, fables, and fairy tales, they spoke to him of the life and miracles of Saint Asenios. Saint Asenios was the village priest when they were in Turkey. Saint Arsenios baptized him and gave him the name after himself, Arsenios. He's now a saint of the Orthodox Church too. And that's really nice to go into more detail about this. But for the time being, even the Turks who lived in the area knew that Saint Arsenios was a holy person and they would go and ask prayers from him. And so he, Saint Paisios, was nurtured with love and admiration for Saint Arsenios. From childhood, he wanted to become a monk so that he could be like his saint. When he had learned to read, he found a copy of the Holy Scriptures and began to study the four Gospels each day. I always advise people, if you're going to read the Bible, read the Gospels. If you're going to read, read more the Gospels than the Epistles. The Epistles can be deep and they're a bit, sort of a bit complicated. You should start especially to learn the Gospels. He also poured over the lives of the saints. He had collected a box full of these. And as soon as he would return home from school, not even wanting to eat, he would head straight for the box, take out a saint's life and begin reading his older brother, he was a reverend child as well, would nevertheless take the books 
and hide them because he didn't want little Senos to spend too much time reading church books and to neglect his lessons. It has to be balanced. Asenius didn't complain, he just found other saints' lives for his spiritual nourishment. His brother's testimony was, quote, from second grade on, Arsenius read spiritual books, secluded himself and prayed often. He didn't play like the other children, end quote. Now, parents can read that and say, I want my child to be like that and try to force on their children to be secluded, to be on their own and to pray a lot and not to play games with other children. You've got to leave the children to develop. If they, if they don't have that, they don't have that. You don't force the child to do things like that. That's silly. And a lot of the saints, not all of them went on this path. Some of them played games and some of them were quite mischievous, etc. And later on, they became saints. It's not a, a formula. What is a formula is that we should expose our children to the lives of saints. He tried to put into practice everything that he read in the lives of the saints. So Arsenios, the future Saint Paisios, tried to put into practice everything that he read in the lives of the saints. Number four, Saint Voluminous of Jacob's Well, 16th of November. Someone sent me this by email and they said to me, oh, this is, because he heard my last talk and he said, this, this is what he found because he's, he was named after this particular saint. Saint Voluminous and his twin brother were born in Cyprus in the year 1913, 106 years ago. From a young age, he and his twin brother learnt about the Orthodox faith from their mother and grandmother. Together with his brother, he showed a particular enthusiasm for prayer, the reading of the lives of the saints and the hymns of the church. Again, same thing. Lives of saints, the hymns of the church, prayer. So of course they're going to learn to pray. They were especially moved by the life of St. John the Hut Dweller, 15th of January. Who else was moved by St. John the Hut Dweller, which made him be, want to become a monk? St. Porfirios. So, if you want, you can read the life of St. John the Hatwella to find out what's so special about that life that moved people, not only them, but I think others as well. This life, the life of St. John the Hatwella, made such an impression on them that they both decided to become monks and at the age of 14 left for Jerusalem where they attended high school. Jerusalem's got a school there so people send their kids there from Greece and Cyprus and Crete and things like that to learn, you know, and they went to an ecclesiastical school. And after they graduate from school, some of them stay on and become monks and priests because they have a great need in Jerusalem and in the, the whole country there where they've got all the great Orthodox shrines and places. They need people to fill those places up because if they leave those places abandoned, the Jews 
or the Muslims will take them over. You might not know this, but in Jerusalem, in the Holy Sepulchre, the big church, where they've got the tomb of Christ, Golgotha, in there, there's Coptics, Armenians, the Latins, the Catholics. They share, but the main rights is to the Greek Orthodox. They have the main rights. Every so often, the heterodox, the others, they try and take areas of the church. So they've got all their areas mapped out. This is your area, the Armenians. This is your area, the Coptics. This is your area, the Latins. And the Armenians and Coptics, I think, they always try to steal the area of the Greek Orthodox. And what happens, a lot of times it's actually in the news, they have brawls. The Orthodox monks and priests try to get those areas back. And they have physical fights. I think they even use sometimes broom handles, etc. They're not going to allow their areas to be taken. Now you might say, but, but, that's not right, whatever. Those people that live in Jerusalem, in Palestine, etc., is very, very dangerous. The shrines and the holy places, like on the Sea of Galilee, there's a church dedicated to the Holy Apostles, where the apostles would fish and Christ would teach them. There's a church there. That has to be manned by a Greek Orthodox person so they don't steal it. And they haven't got enough people, so they try to encourage uh, young people or people to come and be, become monks, nuns, and to protect these holy places. Now, St. Voluminus and his brother were later on, after they finished high school, some years later, uh, they were ordained priests and became archmandrites. In 1979, St. Voluminus was appointed as caretaker of the monastery at Jacob's Well. What's Jacob's Well? That's the place where Christ met the Samaritan woman and spoke to her and then she converted because Samaritans were not Jews. They weren't of the proper religion. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The Jews believed in the, a lot of other books. Samaritans were like what we call heretics. And he spoke to her. That's that place. But St. Jacob's well is also Jewish because it's, Jacob was an Old Testament figure which we recognise and the Jews recognise. And the Jews want that area. They think that's, that should be theirs. So in 1979 he was appointed there and he was killed. How? We'll do it another time when we do the life in full. But I just want to say he was killed. And in 2008, 29 years after his martyrdom, the Patriarchate of Jerusalem canonised St. Voluminus. And his beginnings were reading the lives of saints as well. Number five, Archpriest Rostislav Gan. 
not canonised, just a, a righteous priest, married priest. Father Rostislav Gang was born in China on July 16, 1911. When he was only seven years old, Rostislav exhibited extreme depth of thought. He was known to be intensely interested in the spiritual life of the Orthodox Church and church services, and especially reading the lives of saints. Sounds like I'm a parrot, doesn't it? And again, church services didn't say the, they didn't say the Gospels. Some lives they do say and the Gospels. But I tell you, from my reading, most of the time it's the lives of saints. The Protestants are right. The Orthodox don't have the Gospel as the most important thing. Of course it does. We have the Gospel on the altar. We do the, the entrance and the liturgy with the Gospel. Every day the Gospel is read. Every day the Epistle is read. Of course we have it as the centre. Then why, do I, why am I emphasising in Talk 78, Talk 79, and today why am I emphasising the lives of saints? Because we are told by the Holy Father, you cannot understand the gospel without the lives of saints. In February 1936, age 25, Rostislav was married and that month he was ordained deacon and priest. He served in Shanghai together with the future Bishop John Maximovich, in other words, St. John. His study, his study, his room where he had his, like, his office, a true monastic cell was filled with books about ascetics and many icons and portraits. Like that, that's a portrait. It's not an icon, it's not the halo, it's a portrait. They had portraits of people who weren't yet canonised. So he had saints and those who weren't yet canonised. When the godless communists took over China, he emigrated to Australia in 1953 and was appointed rector of the Holy Protection Parish in Cabramatta. In Australia, Father Rostislav was particularly active amongst the youth, teaching in schools and organising youth activities. He was, he was a dedicated priest, visiting prisoners and the sick, assisting in the resettlement of Russian refugees and finding time for everyone. A huge home for seniors was built at the church with 200 beds which still exists to this day. That's the old people's home at Cabramatta. He organised theological discussion groups and pastoral courses and spent a great deal of energy tending to the education and training of the next generation of clergymen. Many of the priests who serve in Australia today were sent by Father Rostislav to Holy Trinity Seminary in Jordanville, New York. He reposed whilst undergoing heart surgery in 1975 and a great mass of people gathered to pray at his funeral. Dedicated to Christ at his church from his youth up, Father Rostislav inspired a whole generation of clergymen in the Australian New Zealand diocese and his memory is revered to this day. An example, like he actually inspired a lot of young people to go to Jordanville and study, then they became priests. One of them there's a few, quite a few of them, but one that I do know is Father Nikitas of the parish of St. Nicholas, Fairfield. He actually was a spiritual child of Father 
Rostislav. And he told me personally that it was Father Rostislav who um, encouraged him to, to go to study and then later on become a priest. So why did I um, read that life? Because there was a periodical back in the old days, Orthodox America, I think it was, and they said if Australia will have its first saint, it could be Father Rostislav. Because we haven't got any saints. Of course, there are saints. Botany Cemetery is full of them. Rookwood's full of them. But they're not canonised, as we say. But saints, if someone died with repentance, if someone died even and wasn't perfected, but later on with the commemorations of the church, they become saints. But we haven't got any formal saints in Australia, unlike America, they've got so many. But here we haven't got anything. Sad, isn't it? And it's true that Australia is not a very religious country. America is, even though they're heterodox, they're not orthodox, a lot of them, but they're religious. Why is Australia like that? I don't know. But maybe if you give your children the lives of saints, maybe they might become the first saint that's canonised. Number six, Venerable Father Abraham of Smolensk, 21st of August, new one. Our Holy Father Abraham was the son of wealthy and devout Christians who had obtained his birth by the fervour of their prayers so they couldn't get pregnant and they didn't go and do those treatments now, IVF, well, they didn't exist. Now, some will say, oh, you saying that IVF's bad? And all that. Well, firstly, they fertilise eggs and they throw them away, number one. Fertilised eggs, they got souls. Once the sperm and the egg join together, it's fertilised, becomes a human soul. Secondly, it's now coming out, but not really publicised because it will make the feminists upset. And we don't want to make the feminists upset do we? I'm being sarcastic. Who cares? It's coming out now that children who were conceived by IVF are having a lot of problems. Diabetes, mental problems, depression, a lot of sicknesses because of IVF. It's unnatural. Because remember that, I don't know how long ago they started, but now they're starting to see the effects. And there's a higher chance of children that were born from IVF to have problems. As are children who were born from mothers who had abortions. As are mothers affected a lot who had abortions. All this is kept because the feminists don't want you to know. Why? Well, why is that? Because they want as many babies as possible to die. Oh, you're exaggerating. Study it and you'll see. But a woman has the right to choose. Does she? When she goes to the clinic, they're really encouraged and pushed to have an abortion. So there's not much choice, even though they say women have choice. And that's true, they do have choice. God's given them that choice. They can kill their child or they can keep it. They have that choice. 
However, they have to realise that there are repercussions. It's a sin. So are the abortionists, the one who do the abortions, the nurses that participate, and the woman that does it, and the husbands that push their wives. They all give word. There's repentance. And remember what, Saint, what Father John Christiankin said, the Russian elder that died in 2007, around about. He says, if you've had abortions, the children that you later on decide to keep will take revenge on the mother for killing their brothers and sisters, etc. Spiritual law, he said, spiritual law. But they didn't do that. They prayed and they got pregnant. But what happens if you pray and you don't get pregnant? Well, it's not God's will. We've got to be careful that we don't force God because sometimes if we keep on going, we can force God to give us what we want, even if it's not good for you. you go, oh, no, that's not true. Well, in the time of um, King David, no, no, sorry, before the um, Israelites, they wanted a king. And God told them that he is their king. And they persisted. They said, no, we want a king like the other nations. So he gave them a king. And after that, they had a lot of trouble. But he gave it to them. And that story that I, that I told you before, which I always get confused when I, read, when I try to recall it, there was a couple and they wanted a child and they, wouldn't, they couldn't have one and they persisted and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and then God gave it to them. But what's wrong with that, you might say, when, isn't that what it says? Ask, keep on knocking. Yes. But you keep on asking, that's not, that, that's not a problem, as long as you say, if it's your will. But some people are bashing the door and say, give it, give me, give me, give me. I want, I want. And they're asking God and they're demanding from him. But they don't say, if it's your will. If you want to keep on knocking, knock. If you want to keep that, as long as you say at the end, if it's your will. But people don't do that. So this couple kept on going and bashing the door and saying to God, give me, give me. And he gave him a child. After some time, I think the woman died. And the husband, the, he remarried. So now we have the biological father, this new mother, stepmother, and the child that was born, which they demanded, who now grew up. So one day, the father came home and found the stepmother and his son together, having sexual relations. The father lost it and killed his son. He then went to prison. The wife divorced him. And a bishop visited him. And he said, we forced God to give us this child. And look at the result. I lost my son. My wife's gone anyway. Etc. And the 
it's that that story comes from the teachings of a father Epiphanius Theodoropoulos in his book and it says there he's heading don't pressure God you're allowed to ask but always say if it's your will so as father of Ram at school he was distinguished by a lively intelligence and desire to learn but he loved above all to read and sing in church my question what did he read they're not saying he became a monk in, in a monastery dedicated to the Mother of God about 6.5 kilometres from Smolensk, where he led a life of such ascesis, like a very strict spiritual life, in a ascetical life. He spent the greatest part of his nights kneeling in prayer and shed abundant tears, and he would continually beat his breast to beg God to have mercy on all men. Now, I said to you before, that when people lead these strict ascetic lives, ascetical lives, a lot of times they fall into deception and become demonic because they're not doing the right thing. They, they got, they're becoming too proud of their fasting, and, which is not today a lot of Orthodox Christians. They're proud of their fasting and they're proud of things, but they haven't got spiritual life. And here in this life, it tells us one special thing that we know that this ascetic was on the right path. That he continually beat his breast to beg God to have mercy on all men. That's one of the indications of a person having the grace of God. There's humility, there's love, etc. But that's one of them where you're so filled with grace from your asceticism that you pray for all of mankind. Now, when the person progresses a lot, as Elder Paisios did, they even pray for the demons that they repent because their love is so great that they don't even want them to go to suffer in hell forever. Now, if you remember, if you've read the life of St. Paisios, when he was praying for the devil, for the demons and all that, he saw the, the demon or the devil himself close, came up to him and was sarcastic, laughing at him. And he said, don't pray like that. Don't pray for me. So why did St. Paisius pray? It was just that his love was so great. Of course, we should not do that because we don't even love those who love us, hardly. So don't start praying for demons because you're going to get into trouble. This comes out of abundance of love. Some people become like demons where they don't, they don't like it. So an example, two examples. When I was a lay person, I used to like putting names in the commemorations, for commemorations when I go to church. And I, to my mind came a, a friend of mine that I used to know, a Greek fellow, and I put in Anastasios. 
And one day I saw him, the shopping centre. I go, how are you going, this and that, whatever. Happy to see each other, I haven't seen him for years. I go, how you been, how you been feeling? I said to him, he goes, oh, good. And I don't know what I asked him and he said, um, you've been doing something. What he meant was, you've been doing something religious, something spiritual, something for him. He said, you've been doing something and I don't like it. Now, is that worth a while? Well, he actually said, I don't like it. In other words, don't, whatever you're doing, don't do it. I don't like it. He was fighting the grace of God. Another time, a relative of mine, as a priest, I was commemorating him. And we used to talk a bit. And um, he says, you know what? Ever since I've been talking to you, I've been starting to become a bit of kind of drawn towards the church. And I don't like it. So when we say people go to hell, and we say God's cruel, it's not that God puts them in there because he wants to. They put themselves in there because they choose to reject him. He eagerly studied the Holy Scriptures and the lives of the saints. Again, there's another example. He made careful copies of the writings of the Holy Fathers and he himself wrote homilies and books for the spiritual instruction of the people. Becoming a higher monk, he celebrated the divine liturgy every day his sermons in which he fervently called for repentance in preparation for the last judgment drew a great number of the faithful. He fell asleep in 1222 around after 50 years of ascetic endeavour. Yes, he fasted. Yes, he kept vigil. Yes, he did long prayers. But at the same time, he cultivated love for everyone. He did the commandments and he eagerly read the Holy Scriptures and the lives of the saints. That's a proper combination. If we don't have that combination, we're in trouble. Blessed Bishop Varnavis, 1963, feast day, 23rd of April. New Confessor of Russia, it was, this was in a book published in 1998 and the new martyrs were canonised by the Russian Church Abroad in 1981 and the Orthodox Church of Russia in 2000. Why, why did the Russian Church wait 19 years to canonise these saints? Because under communism, which means they would have had to say that the communists killed all of them. So they waited till communism fell, which fell in 1991. And by the year 2000, they canonised the saints, the new martyrs. As a schoolboy, Blessed Bishop Varnavis read the lives of the holy martyrs with great interest. Bishop Varnavis recalled the following about his mother, quote, As a girl, she began to learn to read and write. But as my grandfather had many children, she soon had to exchange the study of grammar for the rocking of her younger brother's cradle. Thus, she only succeeded in learning basic reading. 
Later, she put this knowledge to what could not be a more perfect use, reading the lives of the saints, the holy scriptures and the prologue. So his mother didn't learn much because she took care of the younger, the younger child, the brother. But, when, but whatever little bit of knowledge she had, she focused on the reading of the lives of saints, the holy scriptures and the prologue. Not the prologue of Akhred, that was written by Saint Nikolai. That each country had their own like prologue, which is a collection of the lives of saints. Saint Tikhon of Zadonsk, great saint, of the Russian Orthodox Church. Saint Tikhon was born in 1724 in Novgorod, Russia. At the age of 16, he was sent to seminary where he received a good education and later taught Greek and other subjects to become a teacher there. At the age of 30, he was tonsured a monk and became a bishop at 37. After five years at the age of 42, he retired to a monastery due to ill health. His last monastery of retirement was in Zadonsk, and that's why we call him Saint Tikhon of Zadonsk. Usually you name him after their diocese, but in this case they named him after his place of retirement. In retirement he devoted all his time to fervent prayer and the writing of books. After his meal, now they're going to go through his program, after his meal he would rest for an hour and then read the lives of the saints or other works. At the time of Vespers he had the New Testament read, and spent some considerable time in explaining sections that were hard to understand to his disciples. Blessed with an exceptional memory, he enriched his explanations with many quotations from the scriptures, the fathers, and the lives of the saints. So when he would explain to people difficult concepts of different writings or the Bible, etc., uh, it says, blessed with an exceptional memory, he enriched his explanation with many quotations from the Holy Scriptures, the fathers and the lives of the saints. See the, see the combination. When they say the fathers, what do they mean, the fathers? It means the teachings of the Holy Fathers. Like a stool. See this? This is a, a tape recorder which is on a three-legged tripod. Tri meaning three. So we say one... Two, three. Now, if I cut one of them, it's going to fall. Can't stand. Three. So, let's look at the three. We have Holy Scriptures, one leg. The writings of the Holy Fathers, another leg. And the lives of the saints, another leg. Without those three, you don't stand in orthodoxy. Like this tape recorder will fall if you take one of the legs out. It's the same as in the orthodox life. You can't stick to one and ignore the others. You can't just have the lives of saints. You need the lives of saints, you need the holy scriptures as well, which the saints help you to understand, and we have the teachings of the holy fathers. He is known as the Russian Chrysostom, like we have St. John Chrysostom, meaning golden mouth, he was called the Russian Chrysostom. Another one, number nine, St. Demetrius of Rostov. St. Demetrius was a great hierarch, preacher, author, ascetic, and a man of prayer. 
He was born near Kiev in the year 1651, and he was called Daniel in holy baptism, like you, Daniel. Among his many glorious works of instruction, he is known especially for his translation and publication of the great collection of the lives of saints. This work took him 25 years. What happened was, from what I read, that a lot of books were destroyed during the Tatar invasions. So he was approached by, I think it was a bishop or someone, said to him, you have to put together all the lives of saints. And St. Dimitri said, I can't, it's too much of a big job. But then out of obedience, he did it. It took him 25 years. The English version is published by Chrysostom Press, Manchester, Missouri. They are currently eight volumes. When completed, it will be 12 volumes set. So his books exist. I would say first you should buy the, the Synaxarian from the Monastery of Simonot Petra, which is produced by Alexander Press, which is in Canada. It's about seven volumes set. Or the prologues first. The prologue of Akrit, followed by that Synaxarian. Now, number 10, St. Nikolai Velimirovich, 5th of March. As a bishop, he was imprisoned and tortured by Nazis in a concentration camp. I think it was Ducky or whatever. I can't really say that word, but one of the big ones. But I thought only Jews were put in concentration camps. No, no, no. There were so many Slavs in the concentration camps. Gypsies, homosexuals, political prisoners. But... There's an emphasis on the Jews that were put in there. And we're not going to say they didn't suffer, but why do we ignore all the rest that were in there and were killed? He came to America from communist Yugoslavia, uh, which now, of course, is different, but as a refugee in 1946, he ended his life as rector of St. Tikon Seminary in 1956. He compiled the prologue from Okrud, which is a compilation of lives of saints, hymns, reflections and homilies. It was originally written in Serbian in 1928. The two-volume set is published by Sebastian Press in America. Everyone needs to have the prologue of Okrud. That's a basic one. If anything, you buy that first. Now, if it's too much, it's about three pages. Each day is three pages. Some of you might find that hard. Don't worry. Maybe you can just leave out the last one, the homily at the end. And usually, he picks a Bible verse and he explains it. Leave that out. If you can just read the first two pages every day, and as time goes on, you get used to it, you go to the, th the third page. Don't have to go bang. Some of you can't be too much for you to read suddenly like uh, that. That's what I did. Like a lot of times, I had to get into the pattern of things. So I started small and kept that a small amount. I set myself that much time and I kept that up for sometimes one, two, three, four months, five months until I was, it became part of my system. Then I added extra. And then you can add extra after that if 
you have the time and the circumstances. Don't try and do everything abrupt because you only fall into pride and later on you give it up and you do nothing. Number 11, Saint Nicodemus the Agurite, which means of the Holy Mountain. Saint Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain was born on the Greek island of Naxos in the year 1748 and peacefully fell asleep in the Lord on July 14th, 1809. Saint Nicodemus produced many great works. He's the one that put together the Rada, the Book of the Canons. Uh, some examples, uh, some examples of what he put together, apart from the Rada, he compiled and revised the Synaxarian. He edited a selection of the lives of the early saints. And another book he produced was called the the New Martyrology, which was a collection of the lives of 87 new martyrs of the Orthodox Church who suffered from 1330 until 1796 under the Turks. Why did he put that book together? The purpose of this book was to support Orthodox Christians who were under the oppression of the Ottoman yoke. Thanks to this book, many apostates were converted and joined the glorious ranks of the martyrs. Apostates meaning many denied their orthodox faith. Why? So they won't pay taxes because the Greeks and Serbians and Bulgarians, whatever, they were still Turkish citizens. But because they weren't Muslim, they were required to pay high taxes. They weren't allowed to ride on a horse. Only the Turks were allowed. The Turks had more rights. And some of the Orthodox were tempted by that, denied their faith and became Muslims so they can have those rights. Others gave up because they were, in they were being tortured for various reasons, which we'll hear later on, maybe some lives, etc. Now, some of them who were tortured did not give up their faith because they had read the book of Saint Nicodemus, the New Martyrology, and that inspired them. Like our kids today read uh, the life of drug addicts, sex addicts, and other disgusting lives, and they get inspired. They watch things on TV that inspires them. The same as the lives of saints inspire people. And the lives of saints did inspire those people not to give up their faith, or if they did, to return back to the faith. And when you, when you converted to become a Muslim, then later on you decide, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore, they would put you to torture because they looked at that as being apostasy for them. It was a big sin. Or you, you said you're going to be a Muslim and now you've denied your faith and they put them to torture. So this book helped them. That's what we need today. We need books. Not all these books too many on asceticism and deep books like that. We need books on the lives of married saints so that people can be inspired I mean, you can be inspired to some degree, but it's not going to be very useful to you that one saint went out into the desert and stood in the sun and stood in the snow and prayed. It's inspiring in some ways. Is that going to help you with your marriage? 
maybe a little bit, but we need books on the lives of married saints. Now, because there's few of them, we do get ideas, as you'll notice later on as I read some more saints, like Saint Nectarius, he wasn't a married saint. Look what happened. His mother and grandmother taught him piety and he became a great saint. So that's what parents say, oh, that's what I should do. Instead of giving them books on Goldilocks and Harry Potter and all these other demonic books, we give them lives of saints. Look, look here. The Patericon for Kids, Orthodox Children's Books. Oh, but my kids are grown up now and I'm very upset because, some of you will say, because I didn't do that for my kids and I wrecked them up. What can I do? Or go confess? What else can I do? Buy the books and give them to others. Uh, I was the godfather or the godmother for a child. I did nothing. I only bought them golden books and other books like that and videos and things. I never bought them Lives of Saints. Well, if they're still young, buy them that. And if they're older, buy them Lives of Saints for more uh, for grown-ups. Produce fruits of repentance, worthy of repentance. But we do need books, and there are a lot of lives around there, but we've got to collect them, concentrate on a lot of those saints for people to be inspired. This book also inspired many Orthodox Christians to not deny their Orthodox faith, either by willingly converting to Islam for gain or fear or by giving way during torture. There is need to produce these books. I already said all that. But now I want to go to St. John. In Talk 78, I did St. John. In Talk 79, I did St. John. And now I'm going to do it again. Each time, I put a lot of emphasis on St. John's life to do with the lives of saints. I'm going to read quickly through the summary of the first two talks and then I found some new material for you to help you. This is a recent saint. He just died 1966. His relics are in San Francisco, incorrupt. He's called a wonder worker because he produced so many miracles and still does. So I think it's important to read his life because it's close to our times as well. Because remember I said before there's a there's a temptation that when you read the lives of saints, the ancient ones, you go, oh, uh, did that happen? Oh, you have doubt, you have unbelief. And the, and the solution to that, I said, was to read recent lives, ones close to us, so that you can then say, well, if this is happening now, then obviously it happened in the past. St. John lived in our times. When St. John was young, he loved above all to read the lives of the saints. As the oldest child, he would teach his four brothers and one sister by reading to them the lives of the saints. From 11 to 18 years old, he attended military school, and from age 18 to 22, he studied law at university. Throughout his studies, he continued the blessed practice of reading the lives of the saints. St. John spent more time reading the lives of the saints than attending academic lectures, even though they say he still did very well in his studies. St. John believed that the proper knowledge of the lives of saints is more important than any university course. So I asked last time, when did he stop? 
When did he stop reading the lives of saints? Let's see. After completing his studies, St. John continued his deep and intense study of the lives of the saints. Actually, he continued to learn about the saints by reading their lives right up to the time of his repose. He didn't stop. That was a summary of Talk 78. Talk 79. St. John believed that in whatever land an Orthodox Christian found himself, it was his responsibility to venerate and pray to its national and local saints. Wherever St. John went, he researched the lives of the little-known local Orthodox saints. He went to the churches housed in their relics, performed services in their honour, and asked the Orthodox priests there to do likewise. By the end of his life, he had a vast knowledge of Western and Eastern Orthodox saints. St. John gave his priests the following instructions. Number one, no services should be conducted without commemorating the local and national saints, and especially no liturgies performed without first commemorating them at the proscomedia. I explained all that in the last talk. When the priest prepares the bread and the wine and commemorates saints, we, there's a certain number of saints we commemorate. You can add to them. So when you're reading the great martyrs, for example, St. George, St. Vavada and all those, then you can add, if in your area there's a local saint, another martyr, you can add him there. He wants them commemorated in the liturgy. Number two, they should change services to them. They have to do malebans and akathists to these local saints. Number three, they should take their parishioners to the shrines of all local saints on their feast days and venerate them. And that was even if these relics are in Catholic churches. You don't participate in any Catholic service. You are venerating the relics only. You do not pray with the heterodox. Now, this is the new section that I found. Part three. As a teacher in the Serbian seminary, Bitol. Between the ages of 33 to 38, St. John, as a priest, taught at the theological seminary in Bitol in southern Serbia. Now, there's all political things, there's Macedonian things. That area used to be Serbian. Uh, it's changed hands now. That's not for me to go into. Uh, we'll leave that to others. But anyway, so Bitol was in the diocese of the renowned Serbian hierarch Nikolai of Ohrid, the Serbian Chrysostom. This archpastor, meaning Saint Nikolai, known to the whole Orthodox world, had the greatest regard for Vladika John, who at that time was a priest. Saint Nikolai wrote that even then, Father John, in visiting the sick with an icon of Saint Naum of Ohrid, healed many. In other words, St. Nicola was saying, even as a young priest, St. John was already performing many miracles. Question. Why did St. John visit the sick with an icon of St. Naum of Ocrid? Why not St. Padalimon, who's an unnursery healer? He was a great healer. He performed and performs many miracles. There are so many churches dedicated to St. Padalimon or another saint, like Saint Sava of Serbia, for example. 
Why Russian saint? Why Saint Naum? Well, before I answer that, let's just read the quick story of Saint Naum, the life. Saint Naum of Okrid, a Bulgarian, was one of the disciples of the apostles of, to the Slavs, Kirill and Methodius, May 11th. He preached the gospel in Bulgaria. A tireless worker, Saint Naum laboured especially on the translation of the sacred scriptures and other ecclesiastical books from the Greek language into the Slavonic. Later, Saint Naum laboured for 10 years in a monastery that he established on the shore of Lake Okrid. Saint Naum reposed in 910 and his relics were glorified by numerous miracles, especially healings of spiritual infirmities. Spiritual infirmities mean the passions, not just physical, but spiritual infirmities. His feast days are June 20 and December 23. So why didn't he take the icon of Saint Kyrimethodios? Answer. This comes from the last talk. Saint John believed that in whatever land an Orthodox Christian found himself, it was his responsibility to venerate and pray to its national and local saints. Saint Naum was a very much venerated saint of that area and still is. And Saint John said, because he's a local saint, we should especially pray to him. Let's see if Saint Nikolai agrees. This is in tomorrow's prologue for the old calendar. Some of you read the new calendar would have already read it, but slipped your mind, maybe. Worse still, you haven't read it at all. Saint Nikolai, every saint is close to the place where he is invoked for help or where his holiness is commemorated and glorified. Those who are gifted with insight see them. If those who do not have the gift of insight truly believe, they will see them in due time. So, Saint Nicholas saying, wherever a saint is commemorated, honoured, glorified, through their relics, through their icon, or through that was the place where they laboured, martyred or whatever, he says the saint is close to that place. So, for example, Burwood here in Sydney, it's got the Church of Saint Nectarius. That church is dedicated to Saint Nectarius, the only church, I think, in Sydney. They have a, a substantial relic of Saint Nectarius. They sing his Traparia and Kentakia every day during the services, or wherever the liturgy served. So he's especially venerated there. So when you go there, Saint Nectarius is there. Today we did the Paraclesis of Saint Nectarius. Saint Nectarius was there. So it says, every saint is close to the place where he is invoked, where asked for help, where the person prays to him, or where his holiness is commemorated and glorified. Now, he says, those who are gifted with insight see them. What does it mean that we see the saint? Some do actually see the saint, but that's not important for us. We don't want to see the saint because we can fall into deception. What he means by see them means that we feel their presence spiritually. Like today in this church, those of you who were a bit more sensitive would have felt the 
something was going on there. The saint was present. Others who don't feel that, they haven't gone to that stage yet, it says, but if they truly believe, if they, if they struggle towards it, they will see them in due time. Remember, we don't want to see saints. We don't want to see Christ. We don't want to see the mother of God. We don't want to see angels. This is no good for us. Why? Because we are full of passions. I read in, I read in the lives of saints that the priests, the righteous priests, as they serve the liturgy, would see angels like Saint Spiridon. I haven't seen one angel. They would see the saints around. I haven't seen one saint. Why? Because I'm full of passions. Some will say, oh, you're only speaking like that. Like that's cheap humility. Not cheap humility. It's true. I have passions. How am I going to see the saint? How am I going to know? Is that real? Is that not real? How am I going to discern? Here we have saints that fell into deception. You know, it's very dangerous. Let's be like that monk that we read in the prologue, I think. So he was praying in his room. He was praying. And suddenly he saw an angel down the end of his room there. And he goes, I've been sent by God because of your holiness of life. And I've been sent by God to help you. And he goes, sorry, you must have made a mistake because um, I'm not worthy. And as soon as he said that, the demon disappeared because the demon cannot stand humility. That's the secret. When anything like that happens, you say, am I worthy to be, to see that? Am I worthy to see the icon blink the eyes or something like that? Am I worthy, you know, some, to see the um, flowers change colours or bloom or I don't know, whatever people see? No, we're not worthy. If we have that, that's the only way to protect ourselves. St Anthony, when he, when he was up on the mountain once and his spiritual eyes were opened and he saw, spiritually, he saw all the traps of the demons, all their devices, etc. And he says, oh my God, he said, who can, who can escape that? There's just so many traps. How is a person going to get through all those, these deceptions that the devils have? And then he heard a voice saying, through humility, through humility. Maybe some of those people who go into these groups of zealots, etc., and they say, only we have the truth. Only we are the true orthodox. You've got, they've got to ask themselves, but why you? Why are you the, one of the only ones to know this truth? And millions of orthodox Christians all around the world are all wrong except for you and your friends. See, if you have humility... You protect yourselves. That's how important humility is. St. John arranged for the entire class of the seminarians to be driven to the monastery of St. Naum of Ockred, where his relics were. And I think from what I did for some research, maybe one hour and a half, something like that, from the seminary there, I'm not sure. So he arranged, they all went in the cars. He took them there. 
like the teachers today take people on excursions. I went on excursions when, when I was at school. I found every single one of them boring, but, but I went. They took us to the dairy place. They took us to the rock platform. They took us to the zoo with all these worksheets. I found all them boring. But anyway, that's what they do because they want to give you some experience and things like that. St. John was a teacher at the seminary and he was a true teacher. And what did he do? How could he be teaching these people that might be future priests about the Orthodox Church if he doesn't even take them to the local saint? When they went down to the lower part of the church to venerate the relics of St. Naum, Father John, then, yeah, Father John, said quietly, now we stand before St. Naum. Tell him everything that lies in your heart. Tell him everything that's in your heart. Ask and it will be given to you. He knelt down, crossed himself and started to pray. The seminarians could not help but notice how Father John's face transformed while he was praying. He believed in the saints. They understood that he was praying not only for himself, but also for them. Quote, this is what he said. Pray from the very depth of your soul. Express everything to him, meaning God. Everything to his holy mother, to all the saints. This answers the question, why St. Naum? From among the saints, we will above all choose St. Naum, who carried the light of Christ precisely in this place, enduring torments and undergoing suffering, but never stepped aside from his labours, by even one step or even by half a step. See that? Especially you pray to St. Naum because this is the place in which he preached, suffered, etc. So when we have a local saint and we disdain them, that's not good. Now, Yuri Kurushkov, something like that, an altar boy at St. John's Church when St. John used to serve at Belgrade, when he used to go and visit his mum and dad who were living in Belgrade. This man was 12 years old at the time and he used to walk home with St. John because they lived close. He relates the following. I think he was still a priest. Quote, from 1929 to 1934, St. John taught at the Theological Seminary in Bitul in southern Serbia. He was very successful as a teacher in the seminary in spite of a speech impediment. Did you know that he had a speech impediment? Why did God allow him to have a speech impediment? Prophet Moses had a speech impediment when God told him to go to the, the Pharaoh and said to the Pharaoh, release the Israelites, the Hebrews, Prophet Moses said to God, but how can I? How am I going to speak? How am I going to communicate? I have an impediment. St. Paul also had an impediment. Actually, if you read the epistles, he says there that it was so bad that people found it repulsive. And people would say, who's he? Like, he can't even speak. Why should we even listen to him? And some were even saying his, his epistles that he writes 
are so powerful, but yet in person, he's contemptible. And why did God allow that to happen? For their humility. To know that everything is from him. Even when people convert by listening to their preaching, it's because God does the conversion, not them. Sometimes I look at myself and I say, I produce these talks and hopefully they help people. And yet, sometimes I slur because I'm not feeling well. Sometimes I won't even say half a sentence, but completely bad. My grammar's pretty bad. I use wrong words. I don't pronounce words properly. It's embarrassing sometimes, but I say to myself, well, at the end of the day, we don't want people to listen to me because I speak so eloquently or I speak like a young man that studied here at the theological college. He came here a few times and he would speak to me like this because he studied theology, so he would say, Oh, Father Cosmas, um, I was thinking the other day, and he was speaking like he came from Oxford. Okay, is that real? Is that actually the way he is? So one day, I don't know why, I had to ring him for some reason. So, ring, 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 rang, rang, and all of a sudden, yellow. <laughs> I go, I'll just make up a name. Sorry, is that Peter? He goes, Oh, Father Cosmas, how are you today? <laughs> I said, Well, Peter, well. You? Yes, yeah, very, very, very nice. Thank you. So first it was, Yellow? Like a real Aussie. So the main thing is, let us not pride ourselves. God knows when to give certain things. I, I would not want a person to listen to my talks and say, oh, he speaks so wonderful, it's so eloquent, and not move him or her. I would say I failed. Now, if with my grammatical errors, with my mispronunciations, and people are being affected, which I've heard they are, how many I don't know, that to me is more important. If God allows for me to have those things, See, with maths, I could do the proofs. It was easy. I don't know. I just, uh, but that's why I don't like writing. Because I don't have the, 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 the gift. I look up to people that have got that. They, they can write. They're very good. I can't do it. I've got to get things edited. I've got to look at things. But when you speak freely from the top of your head, which, which most of the talk is, that's it. That's what happens. You're going to make uh, things. Now, some, one woman said to me, Mrs. White at the back, she said to me, when I say to her, oh, so, look, all these errors, when they go back and listen to the talk, he goes, you didn't pronounce that properly. I didn't even know. It was, I used to say all these years, woman's monastery. And she said, no, because she's an English teacher. She goes, no, it's women's monastery. I go, wow, it's embarrassing. 
Is that what it is? Women's, I didn't even know, I thought it was women's, but anyway, that's what happens. So she said to me, when you listen to talkback radio, some of these really famous people, and especially the ones who get a lot of money, the ones that are very popular, they make errors continually because they're speaking from the top of their head. They're not speaking from a script. The ones that are not gifted, they're going to speak from a teleprompter. But the ones that are gifted, they speak freely, but they speak with errors. So, in the beginning I thought, maybe it's, a, it's no good and I'm going to lose people, maybe because I want people to learn. Yes, I might lose some intellectuals, the ones that have studied, they think they're great and all that. The most important thing is that, not, that for me to know it's not me, it's God that does the work. It's not me, it's the lives of saints. That's what gives power. A lot of these intellectuals don't even lose, use the lives of saints. You work out why. Because they're above the saints. So, he was not only an excellent educator, said this uh, Yuri. He knew how to adapt his methods to the age and the maturity of his class. But he also loved his students who repaid his love. So St. John was a true educator that adjusted his teaching according to the age and the maturity of the students, of the class. When you see people that give the same, talk the same, when they talk to a, a thing, I speak differently to when I speak to individuals depending on who's in front of me. If they're born in Australia, are they born in Russia? Are they born in Greece? What education do they have? Do they understand me when I speak? What's their level of, their spiritual level? How much have they read? Have they read the lives of saints? This all goes on in my head and then I answer according to what's in front of me. And that's what St. John did and I'm glad that I read that because that confirms that what I, what I thought was the right thing is the right thing. Go according to each person. In conversation, Yuri says, St. John loved to bring up many examples from the lives of the saints in a vivid way. What does vivid mean? Some of you might think it's that stupid thing they do in the city. No. <laughs> vivid way. Look up the thesaurus. Vivid way means... Daniel, you ready? Vivid way. Do you know what vivid means? You don't know, do you? That's right. So because I take you into account too when I write these out, I've got to say, does Daniel understand vivid? Are other people going to understand vivid? I've got to think to myself and say, no, what I'll do is I'll read quite a few words that I look at the thesaurus, you know what the thesaurus is? Yep. So I'll look up a few words that then it will grab and you go, oh, now I know. So St. John, when he spoke about the lives of saints, he spoke in a vivid way. What does vivid mean? Ready? Powerful, lively, clear, energetic, expressive and memorable. Do you know what vivid means now? Does it mean the lights or does it mean something different? Something different. So when St. John spoke of the lives of saints, he came to life and he spoke of them with such energy, such power, etc. 
Saint John, with much zeal and enthusiasm, would often talk about the saints from different nationalities. Romanian, American, French, Russian, Greek, Serbian, Bulgarian, Georgian, Arabic, Egyptian, German, Italian, Spanish, Danish, Norwegian, North African, British, etc. He loved saints from everywhere. When in Western Europe, Saint John collected, when he was Bishop of Western Europe, Saint John collected the lives and icons of Orthodox saints from many different Western European countries who lived before the time of the schism of the Latin Church. Some, so we don't, for example, we don't believe in Francis of Assisi because he's after the schism. Saint, or as they call it, Saint Bernadette of Lourdes. Saint Vincent de Paul. I'm saying saint with inverted commas. They're not our saints. But saints before the schism, we recognise. Now, many of those Western saints have been lost. We don't kind of, we forgot about them. And Saint John said, no, we've got to put them back in the calendar. He wanted them in the calendar. Since most of these Western pre-schism saints were not included in an Orthodox calendar, in any Orthodox calendar, he compiled the list and submitted this list with information about their lives to his synod of bishops, the Russian bishops, for inclusion in the Orthodox calendar. That was how much zeal he had. Saint John had a particular devotion to Saint Alban, the first martyr of Britain, third century. Like most of the saints of Western Europe, Saint Alban was not in the Orthodox calendar. He wanted this saint to be venerated by Orthodox Christians, especially in English-speaking lands, because he was an English saint. His feast day is June 22, and I'll read a short life of St. Album later on in another talk. That's a very nice life. What did he do? He gave out little pamphlets of St. Alban, he gave out icons of St. Alban, and he brought back this saint into the Orthodox Church. After arriving in the US, St. John Hur learnt about St. Herman of Alaska, who passed away in 1836. St. Herman was a great missionary monk and wonder worker of Alaska. He preached the gospel, built schools, defended natives from mistreatment by Russian, the Russians that were there that had businesses and all that, lived as a hermit most of his life on Spruce Island. So Saint Herman was asked by his abbot, I think, to go to America and to uh, convert the natives there and also to help the Russians that were there, they had companies and things like that, who had fallen away. St. John had an especially great devotion to St. Herman as a patron of the American Orthodox mission because St. Herman was the first Orthodox person that went to, the, to America and did missionary work. He worked at having St. Herman canonized and this occurred four years after St. John's repose in 1970. So St. John 
passed away in 1966, but he had worked for years for St. Herman to be canonised, and four years after that, his um, synod, the Russian Church Abroad, canonised St. Herman, and therefore he became the first canonised Orthodox saint of America, the first saint to be canonised in America. Not the first Native American, because he was born in Russia, but he still was a saint of America. Remember back in those days, Alaska was part or something owned by Russians and the other part. I don't know the history properly, but Russians later on sold it to America. St. John was an apostle of Christ. He prayed to each local saint he learned about to ask for their help in evangelising new lands. I love that part. St. John was a true apostle and he wanted to convert people to come to orthodoxy. And therefore what he did was he prayed to those saints who were also missionary saints, like St. Herman, asking their help in his new diocese there in America. As Archbishop of San Francisco, he prayed to all the Orthodox saints of America to help him in his missionary work, not only with Orthodox Christians, but also with the non-Orthodox. St. John had to do a lot of work, not only with, with non-Orthodox to bring them to Orthodox, but also with Orthodox Christians who had gone off. I said before, St. Herman was the first canonised saint, and he was canonised in 1970 after he died. So how come they're saying he, he prayed to all the Orthodox saints of America? What does that mean? It means there were many saints who weren't canonised, but he still prayed to them. And there's a lot of saints who are now canonised, but weren't canonised then, like Father Seraphim Rose, he's not canonised, but many recognise him as a great saint and they pray to him but but we don't commemorate him in the services because he hasn't been canonized yet but we can still have a portrait of him we can still pray to him so saint herman was not canonized saint as were many others that weren't but he still prayed to them asking for help like saint nectarius was canonized in the 60s but from the time he died, many people were praying to him. For example, he prayed to St. Herman of Alaska and to the local Native American, St. Peter the Aleut. The Aleuts were related to the Eskimos of Alaska, but they had their own language and culture. In 1815, St. Peter the Aleut was martyred in California by the Roman Catholics for his refusal to deny orthodoxy and accept Catholicism. They tortured him, but he wouldn't give up. He says, I'm, I'm orthodox. When St. Herman heard about his death, he called him a new martyr. St. Peter was finally canonised in 1980. He is commemorated on September the 24th. St. John also prayed to St. Peter the Alert. By the way, St. Peter 
is the first Native American to be canonized an Orthodox saint. He was born there. California was run by Roman Catholics, and as is their nature, they try to convert everyone to their religion, and if you don't, they'll kill you, like they did to the Serbians in the Second World War, and they've done for centuries. But today, parents ignore the life of Saint Peter the Alou, who preferred to die and be tortured rather than to become Catholic. They ignore the 800,000 Serbians that were killed in the Second World War by the uh, Roman Catholics. And all the other saints that we have, so many thousands of saints, and instead they send their children to the Catholic school and learn their doctrines. They learn their teachings. They go to their services. They give the kids communion. They anoint them with things. And you've got these most stupid parents who say, oh, but when they come home, we teach them. We teach them about orthodoxy. No. This is a scourge in the Orthodox Church today. You know what scourge means? It's like a, a plague, a disease, where Orthodox clergy are blessing parents to go to Coptic schools, to the Monophysites, to go to the Roman Catholics, to go to Protestant schools. They bless them. When someone reads the lives of saints and sees the truth, how can they do that? But they get a better education. One priest said, no, no, it's their moral. Moral, okay. The Catholic Church is moral and they were molesting thousands of kids. And yet they know about that. It was a culture. It was a culture in the Catholic Church of child molestation. And even though they know that, they say, oh, but they're more moral. I'll tell you what the saints said. Better for your child to fall into drugs, sexual sins, etc. There's more chance that that person can come back and repent and come to the church than if they've gone to heretical uh, gatherings, churches, and heard their teachings. Because heresy kills the soul. Now, the other sins are bad, but they're not as bad as that. That's why the saint, when he says, oh, you're a fornicator, I am. You're a thief, you're a liar, I am, I am. You're a heretic. No. No. But why, Father, why? How come you said yes to all the rest? He goes, because heresy cuts me off from God. Heresy cuts me off from the church. Many of our kids are falling into drugs and sex, etc., out of ignorance. That's from ignorance. 
And I've said before, give me an orthodox person who went to a state school and learnt bad things and fell into sins. I have a greater success to bring that person to orthodoxy than those that have gone to heterodox schools. Truly, they are dead. I see it, I do talks all the time. Even when I was a layperson, when I went to Melbourne, I had a lot of kids. And uh, those young people there, old people, like teenagers, and you could see when I was talking, they were like this, listening, absorbed. But some were like this, blank. Just blank. I said, what's wrong with that person? Just I could feel I wasn't getting to that person. I could feel God's grace was not affecting them. So what did I do? I said, this is the time to become a snoop. Let's go and snoop around. So I went up to them, how you going, this and that. Where are you from, this and that. What school do you go to? Oh, the Catholic school. But all the rest, they were watching bad things on TV, sex, drugs, etc., whatever they were doing, like that. I once took a man to Kentland, to the Russian Orthodox convent up there. This guy was on drugs from young. Every single day he used to smoke. So I was a lay person. I said, would you like to come with me to the monastery up there? And he came. His eyes were red, so I think he was maybe from the night before. That's naughty. <laughs> okay, so what was I saying? And I took him there. And the Russian services are very nice. And it was, the nuns were singing. This guy was Greek, Orthodox, but he had no idea of the Orthodox Church. Nothing at all. Baptized, but he had no idea. So we were standing together. I wasn't a priest, as I said. We were standing together. And during the Sherub became, and he was, face was light. He was fully absorbed in that. He went to a state school, not a heretical school. Once I was at another house, little boy, about maybe Daniel's age, maybe a little bit older. So I was talking to him about orthodoxy, the relics of saints, icons, holy water, you know, I was talking about these things. And he was looking at me, he was going, like that. What is that? Like, was some demonic thing on him? I, just, I got aggressive a bit. I didn't know what was wrong with this child. And later on, I found out, I said, that he was going to a Catholic school. Like that, like the demon that was uh, laughing at St. Saint, at Saint Paisius when he was praying for him, because he was doing the same type of action. I was once uh, at a house, lay person again, visiting a person in a wheelchair, the young man, the one that I talked about that hit his head. There was a young woman there, about 19 maybe. We were talking, 
And I found out she went to a Catholic school when she was younger. Well, obviously up to a year before. So I started talking a little bit about that. And she was sitting on a lounge chair and she was holding water. And then I said something about the Catholic schools and then she started shaking. She put the water down and she fell back with such force on the, on the chair. You might say, oh, these are anecdotal, these are your stories. You might, they're my stories, yeah, but they're backed up by the church. Heresy cuts you off from God. Russia went through 70 years of atheism. Not heresy, atheism. What's the result of that? Well, let's go and visit Russia today. Monasteries, their cupolas, their gold, everything, the, the whole thing. Tens of thousands of monks, conversions. Do you think that would have happened if they were 70 years under the Roman Catholics? No. What did the Greeks say when they had a choice between the Turks or the Roman Catholics when their empire was in danger, the Byzantine Empire, and they asked the Pope, come and help us, we can't hold them back. These, the too many, the Turks, they're attacking the city, the Constantinople. And the, and the Pope said, yeah, we'll help you. But you've got to become Catholic. And the Greeks said, better to be under the turban of the Turks rather than the tiara thing, whatever they call, of the Roman Catholics. They chose to be subject under bondage to the Turks, the Muslims, but not the Roman Catholics. Why? Because the Roman Catholics would have converted every single person. They would not have rested until they converted everyone and killed whoever didn't, like they, like they did to the Serbs. But the Turks, you can pay them off. And they allowed freedom to the Orthodox to a large extent. Because they said Muhammad said that, you know, other religions can still practice, etc., even though they were, some of them were fanatical. Some of these Pashadas, these, these rulers there, they didn't even care about religion. Some of them were fanatical. There was a, a, quite a few martyrs. But in general, the Orthodox Church was allowed to practice their religion. Ask the Russians that were attacked by the Lutherans, etc. The Protestants and the Roman Catholics will not rest until every single person becomes their religion. Now, I can sit here all night, I haven't got time to go on about this, and yet people still send their kids to these schools. Oh, because, because there's drugs in Catholic schools. There's immorality in Catholic schools. When I was in Mount Athos, when I was a lay person, I was travelling with some priests. I met some priests, very pious priests, 
beautiful people. They were our priests of Father of Bishop Augustine of Florina, three of them. So pious, so, so simple, so faithful. And we were at Daphne. Daphne is down the bottom where you catch the boat to go back to mainland Greece. And we're in like a cafe. And there's no electricity there, so they use these gas, gas uh, lights, but they're off. And there was an Orthodox priest there from France. He was a French man, Orthodox priest. So I asked him something, we'll talk, you know, I don't know, and he brought up Francis of Assisi. He was saying he's a saint. I said, no, we don't venerate St. Francis of Assisi, inverted commas, saint. Because no, he's a saint. And I said to him, do you know that, because I can't remember it now, it was years ago, do you know that this saint and 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 this saint condemn him? And then, as I was quoting all the saints that didn't recognise his friends of Assisi, started shaking. And then he put on his hat, the hard hat. This is a soft one. He put on that, the hard one, the ones that... The, and he stood up abruptly because he couldn't, he couldn't listen anymore. And I wasn't talking fanatically, calmly. And he stood up abruptly and he hit the gas light, smashed the glass, I've said this story before, and the glass went all over his beard. It was all shattered glass on his beard and he was shaking that out. All his hand was being cut because he was cutting himself from the, from the glass. So I went out to one of the pious priests and I said to him, oh, Father, I think I did a sin maybe. He goes, what did you do? I said, well, when I told him friends of a Caesar and a saint, the priest stood up abruptly and he cut his hands and this thing goes, serve him right. And one more story. I was at a house and I was talking to two people, parents, who send their kids to these schools. And I was telling him, I was a layperson, I said, don't do that. What are you doing that for? There's nothing wrong. I said, it is wrong. You're, this is no good. And these people were orthodox and defenders of orthodoxy and against ecumenism. They were great. They were, they, were, they were confessors of the faith. I said, can I ask you, how can you be against that bishop or that priest and that person because they're ecumenists, because they're praying with heretics? Is that correct? He goes, yes. That's wrong. It's against the canons. I said, but your kids are praying with heretics, heterodox in the schools. Silent. And I said, but aren't they going there? So how can you be dead saying that? Anyway, I said, why don't you tell whatever her name was, say his daughter, Helen. She was going to an Anglican school. Can you tell her to bring me um, one of her religious instruction books? And he goes, okay, uh, Helen, can you bring one of the books? So I opened it up randomly. Not that I believe in that, but I just opened it up because I wanted to show him something. And I didn't search for some. I just opened up and there it said, not that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. They remain as the bread and wine, but they are symbolic. I said to the parents, look, look what your daughter's learning. I said, you've got to do something about it, because I was doing some talks and their kids were coming. Because he said to me, I've made my decision, they're still going to go to the Anglican school. And I said to him, okay, I'll continue doing the talks, 
but not for your children, because to me, they're dead meat, but I'll do it for the other kids that are there who don't know much, and I'll, I'll do it for them. After I told him that, he drove me home, and he was real quiet and disturbed. Years later, he told me, he said, what you told me that day wounded me so much. It pained me so much, more than when my brother died from cancer, whatever he died of. He's, he said that what I said bothered him more. He got more pain, more upset. And he actually said that than when my, th- than when my brother died. That's why I said it on purpose. I'm not going to do it for your kids because they're dead meat. That was a last resort. And these people were confessors of orthodoxy. Took part in protests against certain clergy who were in the ecumenical movement. Now, see, that's that now put me off the talk. But anyway, not put me off, but I mean, I'm not going to finish a lot of it. But do you think it's important? Give me a drug addict, give me a gay person, give me a sexually moral person, give me anything. I can talk to those people. I cannot talk to the others. Before the break, one more story. So I know you like stories. You like stories, Daniel? This is an interesting story. Do you go to a Catholic school? A Catholic school? Oh, that's all right. I mean, that's... <laughs> I knew you had a heart attack. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I thought you went then, because I'm, I'm Daniel's godfather. I actually stood there for his baptism. You would have wounded me if I heard that. There was a man that was helping in the altar in an Orthodox church here in Sydney. And this man I knew, and he told me, oh, there's a lot of little kids in the altar. I disagree to that, by the way. I don't think kids should be going to the altar at all until they're mature of age and they know and they're faithful. They go in there, they don't even know what's going on. They don't even know when the consecration takes, but they don't know nothing. And it makes them familiar. And when they become familiar, they don't have any fear of God, they don't have any awe. So I don't like that. But anyway, this kid was in there. He was around, um, he started around five, completely a bit dazed out. But as time went on, he became a bit, bit absorbed. Doesn't mean he still should be in there, but let's just say, this is what happened. So he became a bit more ready. And this man was saying, this boy, you know, he's really angelic looking, he's very good, you know, he's very good, even though he doesn't know much, but there's something there. I go, okay. After some while, this man said to me, you know that kid that I was talking about? I go, yeah, what's wrong? He goes, something's wrong. He's just, he can't concentrate. He's dark. He's out of it. I don't know what's wrong with him. And I said to him, I don't know, maybe he's watching TV. I don't know what, what it is. He goes, no, I don't know. What's wrong with him? So 
that man said to him, talking, but wasn't spying or anything, just talking normally. And the kid opened up and said that he goes to Catholic school. Because when did you start Catholic school? He says, oh, a year ago or something. And he goes, um, Father so-and-so said to my parents that I should go to a Catholic school because it's better. So the priest encouraged the parents to send it to the Catholic school. And I said, when did he start? About a year ago. When did you start noticing the difference? He goes, around that time. Again, anecdotal, you might say, oh, this is little stories, but how do we know? Is it all backed up? I just gave you teachings of the church. Heresy is worse. Heresy is the 19th toll house. Sexual sins are 18, 17, 6, I think 16 around there, things like that. In other words, if you keep yourself pure from those sexual sins, which are serious, that's why they're so high up, 16, 7, I can't remember now, but you don't, but you haven't kept your faith, your orthodoxy on the 19th step, you're gone. But if you make it and you're pure in all in your orthodoxy, but you haven't got love, you're gone. Some Serbian monks, when I when I went to Serbia years ago, they said something which was very interesting. They said, You're living in Australia, which is a country which isn't orthodox. It's very difficult. He says, but if you just are able to keep your orthodoxy, you'll be saved. To keep your orthodoxy. In other words, not great asceticism, not great fasting and prayers, etc., whatever. Have weaknesses. If you keep your orthodoxy, you'll be saved. Today, for a woman... Not to take contraception pills, it's rare, oral contraception, that causes abortions. If a woman says, I'm not going to take those pills because they cause mini abortions, they cause abortions. And that's a sin. I'm not going to take them. Even if I get pregnant accidentally or whatever, they don't want to be get pregnant, but they do. Then in God's eyes, that is worth millions of blessings because that person did something which isn't common. Today, if you keep your orthodoxy in this country where everything's just, doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter this, doesn't matter that, Catholic schools, Anglican schools, mixing ecumenism, it's all over the place. But if you keep your orthodoxy and die like that, God will reward you more than he did the ancient saints, as the Holy Fathers say. Because the Holy Fathers had examples. Those saints had examples. And it was part of society, in a lot of ways, to stand up for your orthodoxy. Today, even the clergy are telling people to go to these places. And for you, as parents, to hold yourselves or everyone, in your orthodox faith, you will be greater than the great saints of old. That's what the fathers say. 
keep your orthodoxy. And for those of you who say, but what are we supposed to believe? I don't understand dogmas. I don't understand a lot of them. But St. Paisus helps us. I believe, you do your cross and you say, I believe in whatever the Orthodox Church teaches and I reject whatever the Orthodox Church rejects. Say the creed. If you don't understand the two wills, the two energies, if you don't understand monophysitism properly to two natures, if you don't understand a lot of these deep dogmatic issues, etc., that's okay. That's all you need to say. I don't study deep into these dogmas because I'm not pure. And the fathers of the church have said, don't delve into the dogmas when you are impure because you will fall into heresy and deception. Don't do that. So, what I read in the saints, I recite the creed and I say, whatever the church teaches, I accept and confess. And whatever the church rejects, I reject. That's all you need to say and you'll be saved. Have a five-minute break and we will continue with the last part of the talk. And um, that's it. So, if you go... I just got two more sections to finish with St. John, then we, then we go on. Uh, the St. Herman Brotherhood and the Orthodox Bookshop in San Francisco have been started with the blessing of St. John. So Father Seraphim Rose and another priest monk, I think, they got a blessing to start the bookshop, if I remember right, and the St. Herman Brotherhood, which still exists today. Um, when he would visit the bookshop, he would bless the shop and printing room with the icon. I didn't know what the icon meant, so I'm assuming it meant the curse grid icon. He then proceeded to talk to the brothers about saints of various lands. Right after St. John's repose, Father Seraphim Rose wrote the following, quote, On his last visit to us especially, he talked of nothing but saints, Romanian, English, French, Russian. Is it not therefore our duty to remember the saints of God following as closely as possible Vladika's example? This, that is, to know their lives, nourish our spiritual lives by constantly reading of them, making them known to others by speaking of them and printing their lives and, and by praying to the saints. End quote. In summary, I write now, St. John's testament to all Orthodox Christians, what he left to us. St. John, one of the biggest things he left to us was to remember the saints of God and that each one of us is called to be a saint. It's interesting that the St. Herman of Alaska Brotherhood has the periodical called Orthodox Word and they produce that periodical which is one of the best ones in the English-speaking world and they, are, they, they produce the lives of many righteous people who are not even canonised from Georgia, Romania, Greece, etc. 
And all that was with the blessing of Saint John. We should follow as closely as possible Saint John's example to remember the saints of God. And how do we do this? We do this by, just like Father Seraphim said and what I said early on, just quickly, learning about them by constantly reading their lives, making them known to others by speaking of them, printing their lives, distributing their lives, distributing their teachings, services and icons. Venerate their icons and relics, pray to them, attending their services, singing their Tropaya and Katakya, reading and singing their Akathas and Canons. And that's the end of the St. John of San Francisco section. In the next talk, God willing, there's one more section I want to read that's from his life about the saints. And we'll do that in the next talk. Now, I want to read now some lives of saints. And I'm going to put an emphasis on these books here. I spoke about them in the last talk, but I want to speak about them again. They're called the Patericon for Kids, Orthodox Children's Books, by Potamitis Pub Publishing. P for Peter, O, T for Tom, A, M for Mary, I, T for Tom, I, S for Sam. Potamitis Publishing. These books, these two boxes, there are 89 children's lives of saints and, and other things there too, like some feast days. But most of them are the children's lives of saints. I said in the last talk that I know adults that read these books. Why? Well, firstly, some adults... They're not very fond of reading. Some of them a bit, little bit have reading difficulties, etc. But I also know people that are educated to read them. I'll tell you why they're good. They're reading in a simple way. Some people today don't have time to read the full versions, as well as people are fried. People's brains are fried today. People are suffering from distractions, pressures of life, but also from mental problems which come about because of the upbringing, exposure to television. There are people who used to be on drugs who have now come orthodox and they are in the church. So some of them, their brains are fried. Alcohol. Some of them came out of very bad lives. Some of them are born with mental issues. Some of them acquired mental problems. So a lot of people have their brains are fried. They can't remember much. They can't concentrate. They can't focus. So I say to these people, read these books. Simple. As the commercial says, simples. Remember the commercial simples? Simple. Some of you will say, that's such an insult that you're telling us to read children's books. A lot of times that comes from pride. If you have the ability, if you have the time, 
if you can concentrate, of course you, you can read the, the more uh, detailed books. But I can tell you, a lot of people don't have that. And they do have a lot of problems focusing because there's so many distractions in life and there are so many mental issues and the TV and just everything that's going on, people are fried. Especially mental, mental problems which come from either from their birth, from their parents or grandparents, can be passed on, but also that are acquired mental issues with which they acquire as they're growing up because of the parents, the way they're brought up from abuse, or being exposed to television, or going to school early, or being bullied, or, or, or there's so many things. Now, look at this one here. And I look through this, and yes, there are little icons there. So I think even as, as adults, when we look at that, sticks in our brain, simple. And you read this and, and it's so nice. Now, some of them are really simple, only a handful. The majority of them are quite well written. I, you know, I think they're more, they're more suitable for maybe older kids, but you can read, the, read them to your children where you learn yourself. Now, these books, if you buy a um, certain number of sets, they get discount. So for example, I bought five sets, five double boxes, because the set is the whole thing, double boxes, and I got them for half price, which came out to be maybe around 300 Australian because postage is for free and they're sent from Greece. You can pay $300 for your children or you can buy them a snooker table or a table tennis or a bike or something like that or something soul-saving. Uh, if people are interested in a full set, you can either buy them yourself and get them full price, which is quite expensive, or you can tell the person at the back and say, I'm interested in a full set. And if we get a number, an, uh, enough people, then we can order five and get the discount. So you get it cheaper for around $300. Um, so you can buy them for your godchildren if they're young, you can buy them for other people, you can buy them uh, as parents for your children. And I would, adv I would advise that. Some of you might even buy them for yourself. Why not? As I said, I've got some people that are, they've studied university, they said that they love it. They said, I love it because sometimes I'm so tired from work and this and that. I just read that before I go to bed few minutes and I'm finished the life and that's it. Let's read the first life. I found one for you. Saint Yerasim and the Lion. Number seven, March 4. This is probably one of the most simple of them all. Saint Yerasim, or Yerasimos in Greek, was a monk from Asia Minor, now Turkey. 
who lived in the Holy Land, right next to the River Jordan. Once when he was walking by the river and praying to the triune God, which means the Holy Trinity, he suddenly saw a huge lion. The lion looked at the saint and roared in pain. One of its paws was swollen. Saint Yerasim walked to the lion, lifted its paw and took out the thorn. The lion, full of gratitude, followed Saint Yerasim of the Jordan into his holy monastery. At the monastery, the monks looked with astonishment and fear at how the wild beasts followed their beloved abbot, Yerasim, like a pet. Now, we know that Adam and Eve had this relationship with the animals that was peaceful, which later on the animals became wild when they fell into sin and then they were expelled from paradise. But one of the signs of, some, of the saints is that they have this peaceful existence with the animals. Saint Seraphim Sarov. I think even Saint Paisios, they say, and things like that. At monasteries, everyone is given a duty. Even animals are given a duty or two. So the abbot gave to the lion, which he named Jordan, the duty of guarding the water donkey. Whenever the monastery needed water, the monks saddled the water donkey gave the reins to Jordan, which is the lion, and sent them off to the river Jordan. So the lion was guiding the donkey. One day, however, Jordan fell asleep whilst on duty. While Jordan slept, a caravan of Arab merchants passed by. They saw the water donkey all by itself and took it with them. When Jordan awoke, that's the lion, he was very saddened and a little ashamed that he had not fulfilled his duty and had lost the water donkey. From that day on, Jordan was designated water donkey of the monastery, in other words, to take the place of the um, donkey that was stolen. It was like his punishment. A few months later, Jordan noticed a cloud of sand far on the horizon. He waited until the cloud got nearer, and then he saw the caravan that had taken the donkey. Jordan jumped, Furiously, he bit off the rope which bound the donkey to the last camel and he freed it. Jordan proudly and happily brought the donkey back to the holy monastery. The monks were especially glad because when the donkey had disappeared, the, their first thought was that Jordan had devoured the animal, that he ate it. Saint Yerasim blessed the animals and gave them back their former duties. When the saint reposed in Christ, the lion came to his grave, curled upon it, and never left again. He died because his master had died. We know that some pets, after their masters or whatever die, they die too. So there is a lot of truth there, but how much more with the saints because they had that grace. Now that one was more about the lion than St. Erasmus. I would say that's one of the simplest of them all. I did that on purpose, just to show you. But still, the children can learn. You can learn from that. That before the fall, Adam and Eve had a peaceful existence with the animals, and many saints have that. Here's another one. Once upon a time, a king and queen reigned in a country far away. Now, this king and queen had plenty of money, plenty of fine clothes to wear, 
plenty of good things to eat and drink and a coach to ride out in every day. Do you remember this one, Daniel, in your books? Now remember this one. Let's have a look. However, you read all the books I gave you? See, as his godfather, I bought a box. I don't know how many I've given you, but got to write out the number, which books the numbers, so then I can give you the rest. You understand? Do you like them? Do you read them? Mm. You have to try and imitate the lives. You know what imitate means? To copy their lives. Yes. So that's the better present I can. I can give you, I don't give you money because you might buy lollies. What do I do? I buy you the lives of saints and I commemorate you in the liturgy. What's bigger than that? And that's what godparents can do. Commemorate their, their godchildren in the, in the liturgy and parents can do this for their children and give them the lives of saints to read. Do you read the lives to your younger brother and sister like all the other saints? Well, you've got to start that. Sorry? Ah, oh, she reads by herself now. Elizabeth does. All oh, right. How about Dimitri? Does he read the lives of saints? He's still a bit young. Rarely. Why is that? Is he rebellious or... You read them to him. Get him down there and then tell him to listen. They're very good for him. However, although they had been married many years, they had no children. This saddened them very much as they dearly wanted a child. One day... As the queen was walking by the side of the river at the bottom of the garden, she saw a poor little fish that had thrown itself out of the water and lay gasping and nearly dead on the bank. The queen took pity on the little fish and threw it back upon again on, into the river. Before it swam away, it raised its head out of the water and said, I know what you wish and it shall come true. In return for your kindness to me, you will soon have a daughter. Yes, in some of the lives of saints, animals have spoken. God has spoken through animals, like in the Old Testament. The donkey, I think, they spoke. And some examples like that, which is rare. But it does happen. What the little fish had said soon happened, and the queen had a little girl, so very beautiful that the king could not stop looking at her. He was so happy. He said that he would throw a great party and show the child to all the land, so he asked his kinsmen, nobles, friends and neighbours. But the queen said, I will have the fairies also, that they might be good, kind and good to our little daughter. Daniel's like he's screwing up his eyes. What's going on here? Have you, ever, have you read this before? Yeah, With the fa- yeah. How about the fairies? Do you, have you read in any of the lives of saints about fairies? No. no. So something's going on. Let's see. Now, there were 13 fairies in the kingdom, but as the king and queen had only 12 golden dishes for them to eat out of, they were forced to leave one of the fairies without asking her. So 12 fairies came, each with a high red cap on her head, red shoes with high heels on her feet, and a long white wand in her hand. After the feast was over, they gathered around in a ring and gave all their best gifts to the little princess. One gave her goodness, see, virtues, another beauty, another riches, and so on, till she had all that was good in the world. Just 
as eleven of them had done blessing her, a great noise was heard in the courtyard, and word was brought that the thirteenth fairy had come with a black cap on her head. How are you going there, George? Is it, it's heretical, isn't it? It sounds heretical. Something's going on, isn't it? Something suspicious today. What's going on? Hmm? Don't walk out yet, because don't, don't work out in um, protest. Let's see. There might be something orthodox in this. Maybe they mean by the fairy angels. We'll see. But I don't think angels wear high heels and wear black caps black shoes on her feet, and a broomstick in her hand. She quickly came up into the dining hall. Now, as she had not been asked to the feast, she was very angry, scolded the king and queen very much, and set to work to take her revenge. See, now there's revenge involved. So she cried out, The king's daughter shall in her fifteenth year be wounded by a spindle and fall down dead, It happened that on the very day she was 15 years old, she took a spindle and began to try and spin. The spindle wounded her and she fell down lifeless on the ground as the fairy had predicted in her prophecy. However, she was not dead, but only fallen asleep into a deep sleep. So that's it for that. There's more to the story, but I haven't got time to read it. Now, who knows what saint that is? Does anyone know? Saint? Saint Sleeping. Saint Sleeping. Her second name was Beauty. Saint Sleeping Beauty. This is what the kids are learning. And in some ways, there were some similarities to the Orthodox lives of saints. And instead of reading the lives of saints, because the parents are scared that the kids might become monastics, they let them read this rubbish. I was going to say another word. That starts with... See, but I didn't want to say it because you might get scandalised. So, and we have examples of people that fell asleep and woke up after many years. Uh, the seven youths of Ephesus. The seven youths of Ephesus fell asleep and they woke up after 100 years, 150, I can't remember. There's another one, St. Rip. You know St. Rip? Who knows St. Rip? Saint Rip Van Winkle, he's a saint as well in the secular world. Rip Van Winkle fell asleep for 20 years. And when he woke up, his beard was long. That's what the kids are learning. Saint Rip. With fantasy and imagery, etc. When they can read things that are true in the lives of saints. Some parents say, oh, that's silly, the lion and all that type of stuff. That's silly. But they don't mind if they learn this. Or watch things on TV. There are so many children's books and films today. Bedtime stories. These stories are read at bedtime instead of reading The Lives of Saints. Bambi, Peter Rabbit, Snow White. When I was young, I think I saw Snow White at the cinema. It was a Walt Disney cartoon, but I remember the scene of Snow White with all these animals in peace, as if she was Adam and Eve. 
It was all peace and the animals were all there and the birds and they were talking and they were all peaceful. The Lion King. Some of these are books, films, you know. Lassie. Puss in Boots. Dr. Doodle. That was an old one. I remember I watched that too at the cinemas. And there was one, he had a song. If I could talk to the animals, just imagine it. Then there was all these TV shows when we were young, Flipper, Skippy, you know Skippy? He understands everything. You tell him things and he does salivas and then off he goes. He runs. He, he understands everything. That's what the kids are learning. Black Beauty, Mr. Ed, the talking horse, Bugs Bunny. There's this new thing out now, a TV series, Peppa Pig. Now, Netflix has a category called Animal Tales. And there's all these movies about animals. Charlotte's Web, Benji, Madagascar, Happy Feet, All Dogs Go to Heaven. That's a, that's a really interesting one. All Dogs Go to Heaven. That's what the kids are learning. Animals have souls, but not immortal souls. Only humans have an immortal soul. When a human dies, the soul lives on, either in heaven or hell. When an animal dies, the soul dies. But that's not what the kids are taught. There's Tarzan. There's a, they've done, I think, a movie or cartoon on that. Mary Poppins. Then, if that's not bad enough, Netflix has got another category. Even though it's against the World Health Organization, which said they shouldn't do this. You ready? The, what is the wealth... I think it was the World Health or some a group of... Um, anyway, they said children should not watch TV from 0 to 2. I think it should be more. But at least we've got 0 to 2 out of them. It's like trying to squeeze a rock. But anyway, they say that's no good. They have certain rules. Children should not watch TV from 0 to 2. Children should not be sent to preschools between 0 and 2. I think it should be more. But anyway, not to two, because why? It's crucial. And children should be breastfed at least from not to two, they say. Isn't it interesting? Not to two. Okay, I'll tell you the Netflix category. Ready? Movies for ages not to two. A whole list of movies for children not to two. Now, there's been a lot of studies which have found that children that are babies, that are young, that watch TV, the lights, etc., cause brain damage to the child, similar to someone who's been given physical brain damage. I was going to read it, but I'll read it next time. Elder Paisios, I found some sections where he said that children that are young that watch television get brain damage. How does he know? Did he read it? He was enlightened. And yet, the children are put in front of them. And by the way, because I know some preschool teachers, um, the preschool teachers, instead of doing activities with the kids and all that, they're using the television, these videos and all that, to occupy them, and they're getting affected. So let's get out of the rubbish fairy tales, etc. Let's go back to the Patericon for Kids and I have a beautiful life. The Barber Saint. 
Nimara lies Ardo Ardunis. Number 11 in the series, January 31st. Now, the other one was a bit simple, but this one is a good one too. Some 300 years ago in the beautiful Greek city of Kalamata, there lived a very good barber, a very good barber indeed, a barber to whom all the men in town, young and old, Christians, Jews and Muslims, went for a haircut. However, the times were hard. Most of Greece was under the Islamic yoke, meaning they were under the Turks. So the children are learning history as well. Christians and Jews had to work very hard as the Muslims were charging them the very high poll taxes. As I said before, they were made to pay higher taxes because they weren't Muslim or Muslim, whatever you say there. The very good barber who was baptised a Christian, an Orthodox Christian, every day witnessed the immense differences in the lives of his clients and the unbearable burden of regulations and taxes he, as a Christian, and his non-Muslim countrymen had to pay the invaders. Because the Turks invaded Greece and Serbia and Bulgaria, etc. When communism spread, what was invaded? Pretty much every Orthodox country. Albania, that was very bad. Russia was, was horrible, what they went through. Why did God permit communism and Islam to take over these countries, Orthodox countries, because Orthodoxy is the truth and God permitted these to help his children to come to repentance and turn to him. Now, you might say, does that mean that the others aren't children? I will say the following. Without the correct orthodox faith, there cannot be a true relationship with God. That's why it's so obvious. Just look at it. The Muslims took over every, pretty much every orthodox country, except for Russia, the top part of Russia. I think some areas they even took over. South. I think, I'm not, I'm not too good at that, but they were pretty much free. God permitted them to be left alone because we needed one Orthodox country to help the rest. And the Tsar helped the Orthodox that were under the Turks quite a lot. But then when communism came, again, bang, bang, every Orthodox country, except for Greece. And I'll tell you why. Because Greece was the strongest orthodox country in the world. You're only saying that because you're Greek. No, I'm saying it because it's the truth. And still is. The amount of monasteries, the theology, the spirituality of orthodox Greece is beyond compare the amount of saints that Greece is producing. They tried, 
they failed. One day the barber thought to himself, what if I become a Muslim too? Then I would not have to pay taxes anymore. So he bought himself a fez, the characteristic Muslim hat, put it on and went straight to the judge of Kalamata. Now the, the fez is the red hat, the hard hat, which has a, like a tassel. That's a sign that you're Muslim. Orthodox were not allowed, Christians or Jews were not allowed to wear that. It had a, a superiority about it. They were only given to them. I want to be like you, a Muslim, he said to the judge with a fake pride. Because he didn't really want to become Muslim, but he wanted to become Muslim so he wanted to pay a tax. Fine, said the judge. Say what you have to say and you'll be a Muslim and your name will no longer be Elias but Mustafa. The barber said, whatever the judge ordered him to, and the judge said, fine, so now you are one of us. Good. That means that I no longer have to pay your taxes, right? Asked Mustafa the barber. And then the judge said, that's right. Now you are no longer a dhimmi. You're a Muslim, a decent citizen. Now, what's a dhimmi? A dhimmi is a citizen in this Ottoman Empire. They were still citizens, but a lower citizen. They didn't have rights, but they were still citizens. And they were called dhimmis. See, it says, you're a Muslim, a decent citizen. You're not like a disgusting citizen. A dhimmi is a historical term referring to non-Muslims living in an Islamic state with legal protection and allowed to retain their original faith. The Islamic law says that uh, people that are living under them that are of different faith are allowed to retain their faith. But of course we know that there was exceptions and every so often massacres and killings, etc. So the very good barber became a Muslim and was now allowed to wear nice shoes and clothes to ride a horse and was not obligated to pay the poll taxes anymore. Now, do you think this is babyish? I, I don't think so. I'm, I'm loving it. What do you think? Do you think it's good? See? And it's from a child's book. Let's have a look. Oh, sorry, we're missing out on, on the pictures. Let's have a look here. Oh, the barber saint. There it is. Let's have a look. So there's the barber. Uh, there he is there. There, and then you've got um, all the Mustafas and all the Muslims there. And then he runs to the judge to become a Muslim. See, look, look if you show this to your children, well, not just to your children, to yourself. And there he is with the red hat now, superior citizen. And there's the Pasha lying down like a slob, right? And then we have, he goes there. And he sees, looking at the church, he can't go to the church anymore because he's now Muslim. There's the Orthodox Church. Remember as well, they weren't allowed to, to ring bells. And they weren't allowed to make their churches grand. They had to make their churches low because their religion was inferior. The Orthodox religion. Now, let's have a look. 
time went on, a month, then two, then three months, the very good barber, though proud at first, lost his joy in coloured silk clothes because the Orthodox weren't allowed to wear coloured clothes because colour means joy and their religion's not joyful compared to the Muslim religion. And all the money that he saved from not paying taxes could not buy him a single candle in the church. He wasn't even allowed to buy a candle. The Christians said, no, you can't. You're a Muslim now. He was ashamed to be seen by his former Christian friends. The sound of the church bells scared him now. Ooh, maybe some areas they're allowed. I thought they weren't allowed to ring the bells. But anyway, maybe some areas the Pasha allowed them. So why would he be scared when he heard the bells? Why did Adam and Eve get scared when they heard God in paradise? Because their conscience was bothering them. See, when he said, Adam, Adam, where are you? God was speaking in a very beautiful voice, a very loving, kind voice. And Adam, because he had sinned, was hiding. That's the same with us. When we sin, we're ashamed. We can't approach the icons. We find it hard to go near God in prayer. So he was ashamed. His conscience was bothering him and said, when he heard the bells, he would make him upset and scared. He was ashamed to be seen by, yes. Every time he saw something beautiful, he got deeply sad, as, in a strange way, everything beautiful he saw reminded him of Christ. Often, he locked himself up in his house and wept bitterly, regretting his decision. One day, he disappeared from the city. A year went by, then two, then three, then four years, then five, then six, seven, eight went by, and during all that time, nobody heard from the very good barber. His barber shop stood empty. Just think of it. Your children could be reading these things. What influence that would have on them. So you won't think I'm trying to make money. I'll tell you the following. If people order these, I'm going to sell them exactly what they were. Whatever we pay, we'll divide it by five, and that's what you're going to pay. It's around 280, 300, maybe 310. I've got to put the GST because the GST, that's the law. But anyway, so I encourage you to buy them. And if you've got older kids and they're gone, then show fruits of repentance and say, when I, when I had my children, I didn't give them lives of saints. I gave them rubbish. I let them watch TV. God, forgive me. And then get some books and spread them out to other people. Give them to your priest and say to the priest, here, Father, look, here's a bunch of books. Give them out to the children in your parish. See all these things you can do. Buy them for your godchildren. Buy them for your nieces, for your nephews. Then one day, after all those years, a monk came into the town. He headed directly for the local church and greeted the priest. He also asked for forgiveness from him and other Christians. He said that he had rejected Christ eight years ago and everyone realised that the ascetic monk was the very good barber. He became a monk. That's where he was away. He was away. Polymanathos for many years. 
And everyone realized that the ascetic monk was the very good Baba Elias who had become Mustafa. They all rejoiced, but then they were saddened again when the monk revealed his intentions. He went to the judge of Kalamata and said, Chief, I come to tell you that Christ is the Son of God, and I love him more than anything on earth. Well, I didn't expect anything better from you. You despise Gecko. Must be some bad putting down name, whatever. Unworthy creature, the judge said to him. Get out now, screamed the judge in rage. The barber then told him that, yes, he had been born a Christian, but he had, but had become a Muslim and then regretted it. He had become a Christian again and then a monk. The judge was furious by now and ordered the barber first to be beaten severely, imprisoned, and then to be thrown into the fire. Thus, the very good barber who rejected Christ and became Mustafa later repented, became a monk, was martyred and became a saint. His love for Christ had overcome all the riches and all the beauties of this world that the, that the Muslims were offering him, money and beauty. Holy Numara Saint Elias Ardunis was a barber in the charming city of Kalamata, southern Peloponnesos, Greece. He is the patron saint of barbers and hairstylists. He was martyred for Christ on January 31st in the year 1685. At the place of his martyrdom, in the centre of the city of Kalamata, a church was built dedicated to the 40 martyrs. In that church, one can venerate the relics of the Baba saint, Holy Numara Elias Ardunis. Now, personally, my brain's fried a lot of times. I've got to do emails, I've got to prepare to talk sometimes, I've got to speak to people, answer the emails, do buildings, we're doing extensions and building and deal with all workers, tilers, electrician, the plumbers, the carpenters, the concreters. I've got to do with all these people, as well as take care of the monastery, as well as do services. My brain's fried. That's why I can relate to what you're going through. So, when I read the lives of saints, say from the prologue, I open it up, and I'm reading. After I've read it, I don't remember anything. I can't remember. Because my brain's fried. I've got my own problems too from childhood and all that. But I can't remember. Or I remember something. Sometimes better, but sometimes bad. Even during the service, when I have to do the service. I'm doing the service, the greatest thing on earth, the liturgy. And I'm fried. I can't concentrate. Other times I can. God permits that so we don't get proud. Good for our humility. I say to myself, look at the great saints, they were so focused and they prayed and, and look at me. And you can say to yourselves, look at the saints, the married saints, how they brought up their children, look at them how they were and look at me. See, humility. If you offer that to God, even if you fail as parents, you're saved because you're offering God repentance. You say, I, I'm just finding it too, too difficult. 
So I would encourage everyone to read them as well for themselves, or you do it double if you've got children, you read them to your children. I'll read one more, which is a, a modern saint, just quickly. And that will be it. St. Sebastian of Jackson and San Francisco, book number 45, November the 30th. In the 19th century, a pious Serbian couple, Elia and Jelena Dabovic, came to San Francisco from Serbia. They were, as far as we know, the first recorded Serbian immigrants on the West Coast. Soon they opened a small shop and God blessed them with seven children. One of them, the fourth born, John, was a very intelligent and sharp-minded boy. At a very young age, he started serving at the church of his parish. When John finished high school, he started helping at his parish as a teacher and reader. He, however, felt that that was not enough. He longed to spread the Orthodox faith wherever he could. That's another sign of if someone is on the correct path, they want orthodoxy for everyone. They want everyone to come to the church. But unlike the Catholics that torture you and force you and trick you through their schools, etc., the orthodox don't do that. He, there, he even travelled to Japan and to Sitka, Alaska, where he served at the parish of the Cathedral of St. Archangel Michael. Later he went to Russia and studied there at the Theological Academy of St. Petersburg as well as at the one in Kiev. In 1887 he was tonsured a monk and it was then that he received his monastic name Sebastian. Sebastian was soon ordained a higher deacon and started serving in the San Francisco Cathedral, helping St. Tikon. St. Tikhon is the new martyr that died under the communists, I would say. No? It was the mosque. I think that's what it was, yeah. So St. Tikhon, the new martyr, who was one of the priests of the cathedral at the time. Sebastian became a God-inspired preacher and sower of the word of God. Remember, if we try to bring people to orthodoxy and we're forceful, that's not of the Holy Spirit. We need to give people freedom to choose or not. Now, I've, I do that, I've, sometimes I've done that too, where I come across to people and I'm talking to them, I can feel myself becoming a bit forceful. That means that's not from God. It's got to stop. Because God is freedom. That's the sign. We know that the Roman Catholic Franciscans and Jesuits and all those people, they're not of God because they force people to convert to their religion. Our saints, Saint Nina, or the other saints that went, Saint Sava, the Serbian, and so many of our saints, wherever they went and converted people, it was all done in a spirit of freedom. That's the sign that someone has the Holy Spirit. Sebastian became a God-inspired preacher and sower of the Word of God. Can I be told how long this ran about? Oh, good. He was good for me. Is it good for some of you? You're tired, looks like. Is some of you tired? 
No, I think, you're, I think most of you alert. Last time I, think I noticed there was a bit too much. Uh, this time I'm noticing most people are alert. Is that a good sign? Does that mean it's because of me? Because I'm special? No, what? Why are you alert? Because of what I'm reading. Because the saints, they stimulate us, they enliven us. The lives of saints are vivid, as we used the word before. He was also ready to help those who were spiritually hungry. He often travelled to remote mining communities and other places where he could offer his pastoral services as a priest. St. Tikon saw how greatly the young Haradikon was filled with love for Christ and the church. He also saw how much Sebastian wanted to preach the gospel, so he asked him to lead a Serbian mission in the Diocese of North America. Thus, he was sent to Chicago, Illinois, where he served as a parish priest. Saint Sebastian was influenced by other holy people he met during his lifetime. Not only Saint Tikon, but Saint Nikolai Vilimirovich too. And just as it is written in the book of Proverbs that whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. So you hang around with idiots, you become an idiot. You hang around with someone spiritual, you become spiritual. That's what he's trying to say. By being surrounded by holy people, he became a holy person himself. In his heart, now some of you might say, but there's not many holy people around anymore, you know, especially in Australia. That's true. So hang around the saints. They're holy. And they, their influence will come onto you. In his heart, Saint Sebastian kept Serbia, the country his parents had left, to come to America. So he kept Serbia in his heart. Serbia is a beautiful country in the Balkans, a peninsula that is one of the most spectacular areas in Europe. For more than a thousand years, the church thrived in the Balkans and the Orthodox were happy and free to worship Christ. Then Serbia and the other Balkan countries were slyly attacked and occupied by Islamic uh, invaders and all Christians fell under their unbearable yoke for more than 500 years. Southern Greece, 400 years. Thessaloniki was freed in 1912, around there. Serbia, those countries up there. About 500 years, certain areas were different. In the 19th century, most Balkan people managed to free themselves, and in the 20th century, the Balkan Wars broke out. During the time, the saint served as chaplain in the Serbian army, so they went to Serbia. Saint Sebastian came back to the United States of America in 1915 and again in 1917. So he was going back and forth. He spent the rest of his fruitful spiritual life in his parents' homeland, Serbia. It was there that he fell asleep in the Lord at the monastery of Zichka on November 30th, 1940. While sitting in an armchair, he was breathing heavily and spoke only in a whisper. Saint Nikolai gently asked him, I think Saint Nikolai Velimirovich, do you have any wish, Father? And he replied, only the kingdom of heaven. Then there's a note from the same in the book. Oh, should, we should look at that, shouldn't we? Look at the pictures again. See? So let's have a look. The parents. Coming from... This is right there in Serbia, probably. There he is there, preaching. There's his church, I think, in uh, Alaska. And 
and then he uh, went to Russia and studied, and then he was tonsured a monk with the name Sebastian. He served as the liturgy, became a priest, the faithful people. Can you see all that? Sorry. And then we've got Saint Sebastian, Saint Nikolai, saying that he was part of his life. I don't know what, I think he's kept the Serbian in his heart. And that's it, see? So, picture's good for your children, picture's good for yourselves. Okay, the note. Saint Sebastian had founded the first Serbian Orthodox Church in America, Jackson, California, in 1894. And in 2007, his remains were exhumed from, that, from the Zijka Monastery in Serbia and translated to this American church. So he died in Serbia and in 2007, which is 115 years later, roundabout, they took his relics to America. Saint Sebastian of, ja of Jackson denied himself all worldly treasures and possessions in order to help those in need of spiritual guidance. Saint Nicolai Merovich used to say that Saint Sebastian had crossed the Atlantic 15 times and the Pacific Nine. As a true apostle, he tirelessly spread the word of God to people of different ethnic backgrounds, such as American, Russian, Greek, Syrian, Bulgarian, Japanese, and of course, Serbian. One of those Serbian parishes was St. Nicholas Church in um, Hamilton, the first in Eastern Canada. Uh, Hamilton is a port city in the province of Ontario. My, I'd put that in. His name was added to the saints of the Holy Orthodox Church at the Holy Assembly of Bishops of the Serbian Orthodox Church on the 29th of May, 2015. So he was canonized four years ago. We commemorate him on November the 30th. So he's another American saint. Now, I didn't find that babyish. I found that interesting. And point of fact, I've never read, because I, I, it's not in the Synaxarians, because the Synaxarians were written a few years ago. This is a newly canonized saint, and I have never read it. That's the first time that I read the life of Saint Sebastian. I think they named the press that produces the prologue, Sebastian Press, after him. So I had another two, but we're not gonna have time. But we can add these to the next talk. Before the food's ready, any questions? and stick to the topic. Yes? Uh, what if you have like um, a niece or a nephew um, and you know that they're reading all those fairy tales and that they're going to continue that because the parents are doing that. So is there still worth getting them those books? So what you do is you need to pray for them first for a period of time. Could even be for weeks, could even be for months. Pray for God to enlighten them. Pray for God to enlighten you. How to approach, how to give them the books, what to do, how to work things out. Ask for guidance. Because when we try to do things on our own, we, we muck it up. So we ask God for help, and then we proceed as we are hopefully enlightened. So it might be, you're not going to give them a whole box. You might try with one life. Give it to them as a present. Now, if the parents, you never know, the parents might give, them, might give it to them, they might not. But God doesn't look at the result, he also looks at your attempt. So if you fail in your attempt, 
Blessed Sai. Still, your attempt will be counted by God and will help that person later on, that child later on, to come to the faith. So we shouldn't give up or because we fail. Prayer is very important. Whatever we do, we have to do prayer to ask God to help us, to guide us. When you're dealing with your children, how to discipline them, how to talk to them, what to do, prayer, 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 continually asking God. The more God sees your humility, the more God will answer you and will give you discernment. The more you try on your own and say, I know how to do it, I know what to say, I know this, I know, the more you're darkened. So if you want to be darkened, rely on yourself. If you want to be enlightened, rely on God. Next question. Some of you say, if we ask him a question, he might talk too much and I'm hungry. So we won't, we won't ask any questions. It's, that's a point. I, I agree with that, but I promise that as soon as they say it's ready, I'm going to stop. So, it's not ready yet, so ask, question, ask a question. Five minutes. Okay. I think it's quietness of the mind. What is it? Quietness of the mind. What does that mean? Ah, oh, yes, that does happen. Uh, people are so overwhelmed that um, they're speechless. They're overwhelmed by the lives of saints. They move them so much. You see, some other talks people have gone to, they've told me, after the talk, it's ha 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 he 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 he's and all that type of stuff. But here, we don't see any ha-ha-has and he-he's. You know why? Because people are so overwhelmed by the, the talk, not because of me, the content, the fathers of the church, the teachings of the fathers and all that, the teachings of the saints, the slides of the saints, they're so overwhelmed, they're filled with grace, and therefore there's no ha-ha-he-he's. See, if someone says to me, I really, I really like your talk, then the devil can come along and say, he liked your talk, trying to make me proud. But you know what? Not that pride doesn't come in, it sneaks in. But most of the time, I don't care about those comments. I gauge, not if a person says, I love the talk, I this and that. See, this is, this is a sign if something's from grace. And this is what I've tested with people and it comes out correct. I wait for the magic words. And how did that make you feel? And this is how I know. When they say, it really inspired me to struggle more. It really inspired me to repent of my sins. When you see that something has an effect on you, where you're repenting of your sins, where you're inspired to struggle towards overcoming your passions, and you're inspired to want to be saved, that's from the Holy Spirit. That's what I look for when a person says it helped them. When I hear that, I'm happy. But when I hear, oh, it was really interesting, it was good, it was this and that, I'm not moved. That I, I, don't, I don't listen to that. That's how I know. That's the sign 
of God's grace. Yes. Um, you mentioned people praying to um, saints or elders who haven't been venerated as saints yet. What if they're praying as intercessors yet? What if they're praying to them and, and they don't become saints later on? So they're praying to them as intercessors. I haven't seen any canons or rules which say that people cannot pray privately to certain people. So, if the person that you're praying to hasn't found grace, then people usually are disinclined to pray to them. And there's no consensus of the church where, see, St. Nectarius was venerated for decades before he was made a saint, but it was in the mind of the church that he was a saint. The church in the 60s just confirmed it, which then made it uh, official that he could be commemorated in church, etc. Now, to your shock, there were some people who were praying to him, made icons of him as an Orthodox saint before canonization, put together paracleses, services, malebans and all that, and commemorated him like an Orthodox saint before he was even canonized. That does happen. And then the church has to say, well, we have to do something because it's the people who believe that there's a saint and then there's miracles, etc., etc., and then they confirm it. So you will find, for example, I'm not going to mention names, but let's look at some patriarchs. They're ecumenists. Who prays to them? Who honours them? Who goes to their tombs? No one. They die in heresy, a lot of them. But look at St. Paisios, St. Porfirios, St. Jacob of Severia, St. Amphilochios Macris of um, Patmos. Was it Patmos? I'm confused now. He's newly canonised. All these other saints from Romania, from Bulgarians, that all the people running to them, no one's going to go after those who are not holy. Now, it does happen that sometimes the church waits 200, 300, 400 years till they canonize some saints. St. John was canonized in 1991. He died in 66, 4, 70, 21, 25 years. St. Paisos was pretty quick as well. St. Porfirios was quick. But there's others that are, that, are, that are not canonized. It doesn't mean they're not saints. They just haven't been canonized. God's will, God, God arranges it like that. I don't know why, but that's how it is. But you can pray privately. Like Father Seraphim Rose, the monastery that he belonged to there, they will do panahidas, memorial services, Officially, when the priest puts on the Petrahili, they don't do malebans. They don't want to go against their synods. But other places, like in Greece, they're a bit more daring. They say, no, we're going to pray to him like a saint. And you canonize him. And they do. So the people are the ones who first determine whether someone's a saint, and then the church canonizes them. Like St. Nectarius, the Church of Alexandria rejected him, rejected him. 
persecuted him, threw him out of Alexandria. And they only, and he was canonized in 66, they only, the Church of Alexandria officially made an, a, a, an apology to Saint Nectarius in, uh, someone told me just now, but I, I knew I was, in the, in the 80s. It took him 60 years to apologize, 60 years. So the rest of the world recognized Saint Nectarius. The Church of Alexandria didn't say he wasn't a saint, but they didn't apologize for what they did officially, see? So there's all these ways. Okay, I promise to stop. So God willing, we will continue with the lives of saints. In the next talk, I will give a mixture some of the children's ones, some of the more adult ones as well. Even though to me, apart from St. Erasmus Jordan, which was very simplified, but still I think it was good. Now, I'll promise you two things today. One, the food, I said I'm going to be quiet. And the other promise is, I won't read any more fairy tales. <laughs> that was it. I want to make my point, you know, with saints sleeping and all those people. That's it now. I've made my point. I talked a lot about it. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. They want to continue with their children to listen to that rubbish, they're going to give word. Because now you know. Maybe before you didn't know. Now you know. That needs to stop. And take care of your children's souls. They're not your children officially. They're God's children. And God gave you them to nurture them and bring them, and bring them close to him. Not close to... Channel 7 and Channel 9 and Channel This and Netflix and things like that. Because the teachers today of the children are them. Is the television, the internet. They're the teachers of the kids. They shouldn't be the teachers of the kids. The teachers of the kids should be the Gospels and the lives of saints. <clears throat> Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen.